Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what's your favorite use of classical music in a film? I'm torn between two. Uh, there's a part of me that wants to answer also Sprux Zarathustra in 2001 A Space Odyssey. An obvious answer, but, you know, uh, the first time I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey in 70mm, I saw it with my, my partner. And when that happens the first time, you hear that bum, bum, bum. I believe she leaned over to me and said, are you crying? And I, <laughs> I like a tear was just going down my face of just like, it's so good because we were in the front row. But on the Kubrick train, a different one occurred to me that I do think of as like my favorite marriage of classical music and image where the two are just bonded. I now can't hear the song without thinking of the image, which is the use of the thieving magpie in A Clockwork Orange. That when it's like the four of them walking and DeLarge, you know, slow motion, hitting the guy with the cane and then going to the water and them just beating the hell out of him. It's just such a, a remarkable pairing of music and images in a way that it's, it's, it's so well done that even though you know the music was composed, you know, decades before, you feel like it was written for that scene, you know? Um, so my favorite piece of classical music, use of classical music of film, is The Thieving Magpie in A Clockwork Orange. This one kind of came to me uh, after a little uh, uh, deliberation, because it was on the tip of my tongue, and I was like, why? I can't think of it. What the fuck? Because my brain is broken. But once I, once I went through the giant collection behind me, it, I didn't even get through the A's before I was like, oh, right, this is what I was thinking of. Durr. It's Ride of the Valkyries from Apocalypse Now. It's kind of like the way uh, the, like the classical music is used in A Clockwork Orange in an almost ironic way to kind of comment on the, the actions going on. They're, they're, it's just the way it's used as they're riding into battle with Robert Duvall looking to fucking just napalm the Vietnamese and drop bombs in the ocean so he could get a sick wave. Just how like little these people care about the mayhem that's going on around them just kind of perfectly encapsulates the mayhem of the movie. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just kind of like one of the many perfect things that Coppola did in that movie to kind of make his his magnum opus of pure revolver to the head insanity. <laughs> Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. 
Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, returning guest Jordan Beck is here to offer his expertise and passion for one of Disney's boldest films, 1940s Fantasia. Our guest today is the head of development for Hero for Hire Creative and a returning guest to our show, Jordan Beck, joins us again to talk about Fantasia. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you guys for having me back. It was a blast last time. Welcome back. Can't wait. Uh, changing things up this time. We're talking about a another Disney animated movie. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been typecast by you guys. <laughs> We're Don't doing worry, new we'll, here. We'll we'll shake it up at some point. We'll get you on for like I don't know. Uh, you promised me the Zapruder film last time. <laughs> to, so... to be clear, Tom has promised the Zapruder film. All over the place. Tom loves bringing up the fact that the Zapruder film is in the registry. Well, listen, it's going to be like my like something that my shirt has been involved in. It'll be the Battle Royal, and every yeah. five minutes, somebody will enter the chat, and then by the, by minute 30, it'll just be a free-for-all of everyone just screaming about <laughs> how fucking gnarly it is when his brains just splatter across so the To be clear, Tom's, Tom is proposing a two-hour episode, but everybody gets the length of the Zapruder film to share their theories. That's what you're pitching? <laughs> Every time, every time the Sapruta film ends, it's going to be like when somebody enters the rumble. Beep, beep, beep. God, God, it's it's Patrick Williams with a steel chair. Yeah. And I'm getting played in with John Williams' JFK theme. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we should note Tom is wearing a Macho Man Randy Savage shirt. You mentioned your shirt, Tom. You forget the audience can't see the video. Only we can. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> They'll figure uh, it out. It's context clues. Context clues. Oh, no. Tom. Yeah, Tom's wearing a Yokozuna t-shirt. <laughs> Fuck, uh, I need a Yokozuna t-shirt now. Sorry, uh, excuse me. Looking up Yokozuna t-shirt. You think I'm joking, but I am. But we are so glad to have you back, Jordan, especially because, you know, when we did uh, Snow White, you and I, you know, we didn't really know each other at all. And it was incredible. We had such a good time when you were on. I think we went for even like an hour after we finished recording. It was, we had so much fun. So I'm so glad to have you back uh, for uh, another film that we all love so much. Yeah. And you had to actually you had to prime the swear jar for me. Um, <laughs> I remember the swear jar. like I yeah. was oh. I was the one who broke the F barrier that time. <laughs> Yes, 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 you did. I, also, I'm sorry. Immediately just found the best shirt. I'm buying it once the second this show ends. It's a, picture, it's a picture that says John and Yoko, but it's a picture of John Lennon standing next to Yoko Zuna. Is it in scale? Like, Yes, just a giant monster man standing next to John Lennon in his New York City t-shirt. So uh, that's happening. It's a good tag team. Um... So this is, uh, this is our Fantasia episode. Uh, as folks could tell, uh, from... this t-shirt is my Fantasia. <laughs> Just something I dream about. Set to uh, Ave Maria. I sent it in the chat. Look at look at it. This shirt is amazing. <laughs> this is already already our most off the rails episode of the season. Uh, I love it. Glad it's I just... could help. <laughs> Hey, it's, it's as off the rails as uh, Fantasia being, True. you know, this very beautiful, very elegaic, you know, kind of music video anthology thing. And then all of a sudden we take a trip to hell. So, you know. And also uh, kind of like Fantasia 2000, because there's a lot of decisions where you go, this isn't where I think it's going to go. Huh. Did DreamWorks make this movie? 
you're 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 watching along and mickey mouse shows up and the next thing you know there are centaurs naked and all, all, <laughs> and, all oh. remaining questions are centaur questions <laughs> we yeah. are we are definitely touching on the centaurs and all the others but um i was just so thrilled to have you back with us you know we talked as uh tom noted before we got on mic that we talked a lot about fantasia uh on our snow white episode and just animation and the possibilities of animation so much so it, it made sense to, to come back on this one so before we get into uh jordan your feelings on fantasia uh let's talk about what the registry had to say uh here's what the library of congress had to say disney studios most ambitious animated feature Fantasia integrates famous works of classical music with imagery that ranges from dancing hippos to abstract geometrics as it endeavors to combine high art with mass culture. Among the combinations of sights and sound, some kitschy, others more elegant, are an abstract representation of Johann Sebastian Bach's Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, a performance of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite danced by flowers and fairies, and an irreverent treatment of Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. The film's most famous sequence, Paul Dukas's Sorcerer's Apprentice, stars Mickey Mouse, the last time Walt would voice his creation, as a gold-bricking assistant undone by a magic hat. A commercial failure initially, the film's popularity has grown steadily over the decades with subsequent re-releases and video sales. That's what the National Film Registry had to say. Now, Jordan, you are as much, if not more, of a Disney nerd and a Disney history nerd than I am, so I have to ask, did something in that registry statement bother you as much as it bothered me? Yeah, but it's a really specific complaint, uh, and not even a complaint, I, I, just a comment. I bet it is. Well, well, for me, it's the use of the word gold bricking because that just automatically made oh. me hear like Walter Sobchak <laughs> talking about this film. <laughs> see, see, I thought, and maybe it won't get. I, I'm, I'm the nerd sitting here looking at this, and when it goes, uh, you know, uh, the last time Walt would voice his creation, I'm sitting here going, well, technically that's not true, because Walt is credited as the voice in the 2013 short Get a Horse that appeared before Frozen, the Academy Award nominee. You know. Wow. Yeah. You really did throw yeah. it back. However, that is a fantastic short. That's it's one of the all-time best. It should have won. Mr. Hubluck can go to hell. That should have won. <laughs> no one no one else has stakes in in the 2013 and the fact that i pulled the winner is is deeply concerning to me but i had that right yeah now. goddamn nerd <laughs> that these are the things like i still complain uh my partner and i are planning a trip to disneyland and i still get mad that there's the ride in california adventure called the silly symphony swings but they base it on the band concert which was not a silly symphony cartoon and I just sit back and go, well, what are we doing here? We've we failed on the branding from it. Cal- California Adventures is a failure of branding well, from in- start to finish, though. The whole thing. <laughs> false. False. Where else can you see Colin Mockery and Rosie O'Donnell tell you how bread is made? Where else? Only in my dreams. <laughs> Still, to this day, that footage plays. But, <laughs> you know, it's important to talk about. I mean, silly symphonies are going to come up in this because that is what this is an extension of essentially and that is this is the culmination of the entire silly symphonies project i want it before we get into me and tom's connection to this film because we actually do have a, a shared connection to this movie uh jordan what is your connection to fantasia what does it mean to you what's your experience with it okay so this time um you only gave me two months to do my homework and i didn't <laughs> um so i'm actually gonna have to defer to you on some of the some of the nuts and bolts specifics on this but 
There was a re-release of Fantasia sometime in the late 1980s, I feel like. Um, I'm sh- I'm certain of it. And even if it wasn't a formal like national re-release, that was still in the age when there would be film rentals and, and there might have been a one-off in my town. But in any event, I distinctly remember having gone to see Fantasia in the theaters at the Grand Lake Theater um, in Oakland, California. It's a, it's a still surviving 1920s movie palace. Um, has the full lights, has the all of this amazing, you know, colonialist architecture, and I I love that building, and I love that I know I saw Fantasia there. I can't tell you that I remember it. I remember it's one of those memories where there's like I know there's a thing I did, and you have these gaping holes in the memory, like what the movie actually looked like, how the movie made me feel. Um, but I remember going to see a movie in a theater that had a Wurlitzer organ and a red uh, curtain and the smell of popcorn and the the Persian rugs and everything like that, which I think is the only way to really have experienced this movie for the first time. The fact that four or five year old me didn't really register the movie itself is, I think, kind of telling about the the, the movie's place in the later 20th century and early 21st century. So I have seen Fantasia several times since then. And the most recent was this week. And I watched it with my uh, one man focus group, my son who just turned eight. Um, so we, we watched Fantasia again and again. He'd seen it when he was probably three, knew that he had seen it because we went to Disney World. We've been to Disney World twice. Uh, and so, you know, there were certain things that you got to explain. Like when we went to Hollywood Studios, you know, Sorcerer Mickey's hat. And he has a Sorcerer Mickey doll that he got when he was a baby. Um, so there, he's aware of Fantasia, but this was probably the first time since he's been able to fully grasp it that he sat down and watched it too. So yeah, that's kind of my my background with Fantasia is it was never a, I'm going to pop this in because, you know, I feel like watching a movie. Fantasia is not that kind of movie. Um, certainly not for kids who grow up on on puffy white clamshell VHSs. <laughs> uh, and, but But it's a movie that I think deserves repeat watching at different ages because it's going to hit differently wherever you are in your life at any given point. Now, it's interesting you say that because I was thinking about, you know, for me, uh, I grew up with it in terms of we had the tape, though. Our tape of it was so old, it was not even the puffy white clamshell. It was some cardboard box with a lip <laughs> lid that it had in it and i was i was speaking about this with my mother recently actually talking about how when i was a kid i remember watching it and i think i watched it for a number of times but i remember having sequences that i liked and sequences i didn't care about and i kept thinking like i probably would have come to love fantasia sooner because now it's 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 my favorite disney film uh, and i think it's arguably the greatest animated film ever made but as a kid I think had I been born a couple years later, had I been born in the time of DVDs and scene selection. You could skip to the good bits. Mm-hmm. I, and I could go back and forth and watch uh, whatever. But as a kid, you know, this is one of those ones where if you like Sorcerer Mickey or heaven help you, if you like Night on Bald Mountain as a kid with a VHS tape, you're like, <laughs> I got to sit through an hour and 40 minutes that start with dots and abstract lines and like, holy hell. And now... As an adult, I love that, and I love everything about it, and it's one of those things where, 
you know, Jordan, you mentioned, and you're right, it's not a movie that you necessarily, like, sit down and go, I'm going to watch again and again and again. But every time I have it on, like, as I was taking notes for this, I did just have the thought of, like, I could have this playing on loop in my home and just pop in and out, like, a, a work of art on the wall and be content, you know? Put up yeah. that Put up that Samsung frame and let it just loop all day. Like, it is that kind of thing. Now, Tom, I saved you for last because uh, I know your first viewing of Fantasia uh, because I was there for it. Yes, you were, uh, because uh, I was not a Disney child. Uh, my family, we were not Disney people. Uh, I probably saw a few of the new releases in the 90s, Lion King, Aladdin, Hercules, stuff like that. But the classics never got to them. It took me a while to get to the classics, and uh, which obviously means I didn't see Fantasia had no uh, context for Fantasia. So there was a screening in, God, must have been right after college, right? Somewhere around, it was some kind of like very limited and unannounced uh, rep screening at the Farmingdale Multiplex here in Long Island. And again, it wasn't a thing where like they did some like ads of like, oh, relive the magic. I just happened to see it on, like, a Showtime listing thing. Yeah, it was just a thing Farmingdale Multiplex was doing, which they, you know, in the before times used to do, just rep screenings every now and then. And, uh, you know, I never seen it. Mike wanted to see it on the big screen, and he said, come see it on the big screen. And I said, fuck it, why not? I got nothing else to do. And I saw it. And, you know, it was a movie that I think because you if you're going not knowing what it is, and I think even if you do, the first time you watch it, it is it does have this thing of like you need to get on its wavelength because it is so untypical of animation in general, but just I feel like like Disney specifically, but animation in general because it is so anthological in its na- in its nature where it's a bunch of shorts basically put together. I mean, it's basically music videos put together. Like Walt Disney invented music videos but with classical music and you know they're shorts so you kind of like it's kind of a little bit of a stop and start a stop and start and you know it, you get these interstitials where the composer is telling you about the next story that's going to play so uh I definitely dug it and I definitely appreciated it for its ambition and its innovation and its unique qualities but it wasn't something I was like in love with i think it is something the way jordan put it where it's like you're not just gonna throw this on and like watch it and just like hang out with it like yeah i'm gonna watch you know i'm gonna watch aladdin and just like chill out and just listen to the cool you know music or whatever but watching it for this you get more into it because you know what it is so you can vibe on it and i think just getting older you can start appreciating classical music more instead of being an angsty kid who's just like, ugh, fucking classical music. What is this fucking, this foofy shit? <laughs> but but yeah, I think you like you, you watch it and you get into it, and uh, I do kind of wish I got to see it as a kid, because I feel like my theory is if you watch this movie as a kid and your favorite segment was Night at Bald Mountain, you knew that kid's going to become a heavy metal kid as they got old, a heavy metal dude <laughs> as they got older. Because, I mean, let's just put our cards on the table. That is... Some of the most metal shit. Yeah. In a world where heavy metal didn't exist. Walt Disney invented heavy metal. He basically (laughs) invented an entire, like, he basically took the sides of, like, vans and just made an entire short 
set around that. And uh, I've got to say, I respect it. I love it. Uh, sorry, Sorcerer Mickey, you're the iconic thing here, but the devil steals the show. Well, Chernabog's a close second in terms of popularity, so. I mean, he yeah, so when yeah. you saw it at that theater, did they do the intermission? Or did they just play it through? They did. They did the intermission. But it was not, yeah. it, it just was what it was on the screen. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. It was just like the one minute they didn't give you like a full 15. Yeah, no. Like, yeah, it, was like a, it, it was like a fade to black, like the same thing on the, the, the disc where it's just, hey, now we're doing the I intermission, will, fades in and comes back. I will tell you that the movie is actually better if you take 15. Really? I can believe that. Give yourself yeah. the time. Um, because as with, I mean, it was designed and for anybody who's listening to this and you haven't seen Fantasia, why are you listening? But, uh, but assuming that there are a handful of you out there who don't know, it was designed to be a night at the symphony on screen in the early yeah. days. I mean, look, talkies were only 11 years old at this point. Um, yeah. Technicolor filmmaking had only been in vogue for, I mean, it, it started, earlier in the 30s or it started in the early 30s but then it had only really been in vogue for a couple years especially on the live action side so um it was designed to be this this amazing we haven't even talked about fantasy sound i know that's on your notes to talk oh, about the sure. sound system oh, but sure. like it was it the whole thing was designed to be a concert for people who were never going to go to a symphonic concert or for symphonic concert fans who were never going to go sit in a movie theater. So it had this sort of like, hey, y'all watch this idea behind the very making of it. But as a symphonic concert in Technicolor, give yourself the break. Get up, stretch your legs, you know, yeah. go like treat it. Even if you're watching it at home, I promise you treat it like it's more theatrical. Give that to be your I got to get a, a refill or something. And it makes sitting through the entire thing. Just like going to a play. You need to stand up at a certain point. You can love the shit out of Hamilton, but you got to stand up. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's like going to a it's like going to a museum. You know, you, you take you go at your own pace. You ingest the art that you just in, you've just uh, laid, laid eyes upon. You think about it a bit and then you move on to the next one. I mean, it's 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 that anthology quality to it. You don't need to, like, watch the entire thing in one sitting to get the whole like point of it. And one of the things with with Fantasia is I'm actually, especially just recently rewatching it, I'm still very flummoxed by the sequencing. Like this would not pass the high fidelity mixtape rules, you know. <laughs> it, like the the mixtape is a very strange thing, but when you take the breaks, it makes a little more sense because basically you're looking at two three acts rather than yeah. a singular event. And it's interesting you guys are talking about yeah, museums, but you're talking about the theater because one of my favorite little things to think about when it comes to how to see this movie, like I'm glad we've all had the experience of seeing it in a cinema. Do you, I'm going to throw this to Tom because he, Jordan, you might know. Tom, do you know where Fantasia premiered? No. It premiered at the Broadway Theater in Manhattan. And just for your sake, so you can visualize this, you know that theater. Because that is where King Kong the Musical played, which you and I got to attend as, as press <laughs> once. So you can picture the setting. Now, that's the same theater where Steamboat Willie uh, premiered and where Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs premiered. And I think that that's so important because when you picture that theater, or even, you know, for those who don't know, um, just picture an opulent Broadway theater because it is a very opulent theater. You do get that feeling of the importance that this was meant to carry. 
this movie. And, you know, uh, there's something to it where I think as a kid, you can maybe find it dull because there's not a lot of antics. There's a lot, not a lot going on. But now uh, it's something I certainly appreciate as, as a, a, a piece of craft. And then you go and watch, to evoke it again, Fantasia 2000. A lot more antics in that one, and now I find myself going, "Oh God, what the hell are we doing? Like, what are we? No, we could just we could just watch the segments. They're very nice. They're very pretty." Now, I do think it's interesting with that. Let's talk a little bit about where this came from, because I think it's worth noting that this comes out of the fact, and at least according to you know my research, one day Walt is having dinner uh, at some I forgot the name of the restaurant offhand. I had it jotted down, but. Uh, Walt's having dinner, and who should walk into the the restaurant where he's eating but Leopold Stokowski? It was at Chazen's in Hollywood. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so who uh, – this nerds. is – I got to tell you, this is – that is one of the comforts, Jordan, that I knew you were coming on <laughs> as I went like – is I went like, if I'm not fully prepared, I think I'm I'm okay. We're going to be all right. Um, But he, he ran into Leopold Stokowski, who at this point was a celebrity in his own right. Uh, because he was a conductor who had started appearing in Hollywood films. Most notably, and we touched on this in our last episode, Leopold Stokowski has a featured part in the musical 100 Men and a Girl, which is what beat Snow White and the Seven Dwarves for best score at the Academy Awards in 1937. Walt runs into Stokowski and starts explaining his plans to create a double-length silly symphony. At the time, for those who don't know, there were two series running of Disney shorts. There were the Mickey Mouse cartoons, uh, which at this point had started expanding into uh, really kind of being Donald shorts and Pluto shorts and all of that, um, because Donald had now increased in popularity immensely. Meanwhile, uh, there were also the Silly Symphony shorts, which begin with, I believe, the Skeleton Dance uh, in uh, 29? No? Yes? Somewhere around there. Skeleton Dance, uh, which are pieces of classical music with animation set to them. This is, you know, the whole run of Silly Symphonies, whether it's uh, Flowers and Trees, which just got inducted into the film registry this past year. You know, all of these, this, uh, Three Little Pigs is a Silly Symphony, I believe. Uh, there's a number of these that, that win the, you know, and go on to win Oscars. They're these, you know, the shorts that are not involving Mickey or any of the core characters. Walt had the idea of creating a double-length Silly Symphony which would have featured Mickey Mouse, and it would have been the Sorcerer's Apprentice. He pitches this to Sikowski, saying, would you conduct the music? Uh, and then, it basically, depending on what you read, I've read a couple different sources that indicate either they were already planning to make it a feature, or that by the time that they had assembled the 100-man orchestra to record it, it went so over budget that Walt went to Roy and went, we have to justify this by making it a feature. <laughs> but either way, it is something that escalated. Um, interestingly, uh, Stokowski was against the idea of Mickey being the Sorcerer's Apprentice. He wanted it to just be a new character. And I think at some point, Dopey was tossed around as a possibility. But Walt wanted to bring Mickey back in a big way as he was starting to lose favor uh, compared to Donald Deleuys. So they start coming up with this, and simultaneously, while they're working on Fantasia, Walt brings together two of his story people. Dick, Dick Humor and Joe Grant he brings together. Dick Humor and Joe Grant, the logic being, and these are two men that worked on a lot, Dick Humor was a music fanatic 
while Grant, who had worked in the model department, would know what would work in animations. The idea is he would bring the two of them together, and it was up to the two of them to find classical pieces in order to uh, figure out what would work best on film outside of Sorcerer's Apprentice. Interestingly, they selected almost entirely deceased composers, uh, with the exception of Stravinsky, uh, who was at this point still alive uh, and apparently uh, trashed the film after it came out. So interesting call uh, on Stravinsky. But he brought them together, and at the same time, he begins working on the technical side of things, which includes, as Jordan alluded to, uh, Fantasound, which was the idea of creating an entirely new stereophonic sound experience for the theatrical presentation um which was kind of the equivalent of if you guys remember when gemini man was done in high frame rate and only like five theaters said we're gonna play it that way oh um, man you took my whole th- analogy yes <laughs> that's exactly what it is well listen yeah, you, took my, you took my factoid about the multi-plane camera on our last episode so i gotta you know we gotta yeah, yeah sit yeah, around <laughs> see like it's like gemini man gemini man except in this case it didn't suck <laughs> um but it did lose money uh so it balances so just like gemini man yeah. okay so similar um, Right. And like for three. You, could, you could see it in Fantasound in like the roadshow presentation they did in a lot of cases, but most theaters just went, no, we're just playing it in regular sound. Well, okay, so there's something that's really interesting about the whole Fantasound portion of this. So Walt Disney had this idea that he was going to release it, and it had to be because everything was mono sound, you yeah. know, for 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 the children at home. Um, so everything at the po- at that point was just mono sound. There was a speaker coming from directly behind the screen, and all of your channels of audio were coming from that. And that's one of the things that's so fun when you watch something like Singing in the Rain, where they're like hi- trying to hide the microphone, and they make this movie, and the sound is fucking terrible because nobody knows how to do mic placement, and it's all mono sound coming from one direction. So that's part of the whole conceit of Fantasia, is we're going to develop the sound system, but... I think it's worth pointing out how movies were released at that point or how they got to people. And this is true from the early days of the studio system all the way through to the early 21st century, um, how the movie got to your theater. And it was through the theater renting it for the most part, right? So I own a theater in Bumblescum, Missouri, and I want to book the latest and greatest thing coming out of MGM. So MGM is going to say, okay, fine, you can rent this print from us. We're going to make a finite amount of prints, so you'll have to pay us to get the print from you or from us. And if you're going to take this print for this movie you really want, you're also going to rent all of these B movies that you probably don't want, but we're going to block book them there because that's how you earn the right to get this print over everybody else. So in order to get this thing that you are going to charge people a premium to come see, you're also going to rent all this other shit that you don't want, right? It's called block booking. And um, they, the Supreme Court technically made it illegal in 1947, uh, but, you know, whatever. So people have been block booking since then, even though it's uh, federally illegal to do that. Um, and that print rental scenario was the standard of the day going all the way up to digital cinema in the early 2000s. And now we have stuff called virtual print fees. And that's a whole other conversation I'm willing to get into, but it has nothing to do with Fantasia. But what's so interesting about the Fantasound thing and where you bring up that Walt was trying to justify the cost 
yeah. of this movie by making it into a full length feature. Well, by doing this Fanta sound, he had to do what was called roadshow distribution. So in a roadshow, and I may be incorrect about this, but it's the only way I can understand how it worked. Cause I looked it up and nobody's really gotten into the business of roadshow, but I believe that was what those were four walls. So mm-hmm. it would have been Disney renting a theater and Disney installing this expensive-ass experimental stereo sound system in order to then charge the premium for people to come see it. But the markup on you coming to see this movie, so they're not making any money off of the film rental, which was the whole justification for film distribution, is we'll make the prints for X and then we'll charge the theaters Y to rent them from us. But in this case, they had to bring in all of this shit split the costs with the exhibitors on that, which is why it was mostly shown in Broadway theaters or traditional theaters and not movie theaters because they needed theaters that were dark in order to do all of this unnecessary. Well, I say unnecessary, all of this extra work uh, to book it. And then they would print paper programs. They would have all of these things like you were seeing a traveling theatrical production like you were seeing you know a a broadway touring show bring this movie to you that walt would have had to rent the theater to do so yeah there's absolutely zero way this was going to be a moneymaker unless people started showing up hand over fist and demanding that fantasia play in more than those 13 theaters but the fanta sound was so big and so bulky and so impossible that people just said to hell with it. You know, we'll book it in our mono theaters and we'll pay you for the privilege. And I think it was probably Roy who said, do it. Like, yeah. screw your sound system. Take the rental money. Um, so it could have gone down as a complete failure if they had stuck to their guns on the Fantasound at that time. And it's, you know, and obviously roadshows aren't really, they don't really happen anymore. There was one brief revival, if anybody remembers, when they did Hateful Eight in 70 millimeter, which was a similar thing of, oh, we're going to give out programs, we're going to give out all that. Speaking of the programs, I do have uh, – it's not here yet because uh, the eBay order is taking a little while, but there is a Fantasia program on its way. So we'll post some pictures on the socials wow. for folks uh, interested in From that. which theater? Uh, unclear. I just know that it's <laughs> on the way. Uh, yeah. And uh, just like Jordan was saying, it could have been a big failure. Uh, the Hateful Eight uh, Roadshow is why the Weinsteins went tits up. Yep. Uh, and, before all of the before all of the uh, you know stuff happened, yeah. uh, it was too financially debilitating because yeah, for, forcing movie theaters to install uh, bulky uh, equipment uh, for a movie that may not be the most populist, yeah, uh, is not the the greatest financial decision to to make if uh, money is tight. Well, and you know where you could find the seventy mil projectors that could run the hateful eight. The only place that they were like readily available for things like that, IMAX theaters and museums. But what museum? So when I I ran the National Infantry Museum at Fort Benning's IMAX theater when to to start my like grown up job time, Um, and we ran the only time we ever ran a film day and date. Oh well, I should actually back up. So I was talking about that whole film rental process that changed in the early two thousands when digital integration came. The only place that continued was at film-based IMAX theaters because IMAX would only cut or National Geographic or whomever is only going to cut a certain amount of 70 mil IMAX prints because they're so damn expensive and there are so few places that can carry them. 
Well, then the IMAX Corporation started doing um, digital integrations of their IMAX digital system in your multiplex, which we referred to in our side of the house as Limaxes. <laughs> because the Limax isn't really a bigger or better screen. It's just we're going to sit you closer to it and put in a new sound system and charge you $5 extra. And uh, so, but that, that meant that guys like Christopher Nolan, the true died in the wool fanboys, who were demanding Warner Brothers release these hundreds of prints of Inception or Dark Knight Rises on 70 millimeter film because he had all of these sequences that were shot specifically for the format on the film and all of that. Well, there was a finite number of theaters that could actually run the damn thing. And uh, we didn't do Inception on its first run, but we did pick up Dark Knight Rises for its first run. Um, and part of the stipulation for Warner Brothers is, okay, and you have to show it seven times a day. We're a museum. <laughs> We're not running midnight screenings of of this movie. We're a museum where nobody lives in the in the immediate surroundings. Nobody is going to drive all the way out here to make it worth our while to stay open until midnight to show your 70 millimeter print. And that was for a Batman movie. You don't get more populist at the time than those that era of Batman movies. Now they get a little, you know, maybe like more more uh specific um for their audience. But at that time that was like major, major popcorn movie fare. So I can only imagine Quentin Tarantino and the Weinstein company deciding, yeah, we're going to do a 70 millimeter revival or Phantom Thread did the same thing. Yeah, yeah we're going to push this movie into 70 millimeter projections. What museum wants to run Phantom Thread at 1030 at night? Like that, that's that's such a slim market. And that museum also has to cough up like fifty thousand dollars in a print fee just to rent the movie to show it for a 35 percent markup on the ticket. So. It should be known, we're talking about the roadshow. All in all, there were 13 roadshows held across the United States for Fantasia. Each involved two daily screenings with seat reservations booked in advance at higher prices. And as mentioned, the 15-minute intermission. Disney hired Irving Ludwig to manage the first 11 engagements, who gave specific instructions regarding each aspect of the film's presentation, including the setup of outside theater marquees and curtain and lighting cues. Patrons were taken to their seats by staff hired and trained by Disney and were given a program booklet illustrated by Gyo Fujikawa. By the end, though, and this is what's worth noting, uh, by the end, when it was re-released in January 1942, it was put at a more reasonable price with a mono soundtrack and placed on the lower half of a double bill with Valley of the Sun a Lucille Ball Western. And that makes total sense. <laughs> I, it is one of those things where, like, I watched, but this morning, I watched Valley of the Sun uh, out of curiosity, truly just to go, like, why this? And when Valley of the Sun ended, I went, no, seriously, why this? Like, it's, I cannot Because it was there. Because I, RKO had the rights to it, and RKO blockbooked the shit out of it. It's one of, but I just, I cannot imagine Going to see this very dopey, very just fine Western about Lucy's supposed to, well, Lucille Ball. She wasn't Lucy. Like, Lucille Ball is supposed to marry one guy, and then she meets a cattle rancher, and the cattle rancher tries to sabotage her wedding. And then, and then the devil shows up. Oh, but that's what I'm saying. And then it's like, and now, two hours of classical music. And then Chernabog shows up to wreck that shit. Like, what an insane so basically so basically just in the two-year span of Fantasia existing in movie theaters, it went from 
the Walt Disney era, basically, of we're going to put everything into this, going crazy, we're going crazy, to basically what Bob Chapek would do. Well, and it's also, I mean, there's also the element of, by 42... There was a war. There was a war, but there's also the other factor that we... we Are you kidding me? There was a war? (laughs) Well, there's also the other factor we have to touch on, which is... You know, uh, Tom and I like to evoke the the um, the out of time sequence of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood of like that last glimmer before the bad times, and uh, this is that for Disney because uh, they're spending all the money to make high art with all this detailed imagery, and if you ask the you know a lot you know some of the sources from the time like there was this real sense of like freewheel and attitude you know like on the studio like you know um freddie moore is is drawing his weird nude women pictures on the walls and walt kelly's there and all these people are there and then in 1941 the animators strike out and the animators strike breaks because disney is suffering financially after the failures of pinocchio and fantasia uh and on top of that every other animation uh studio in hollywood at this point is unionizing so there becomes a big uh, unionizing push on the Disney lot. There was also concerns about the fact that apparently the uh, rules of who got paid what and for what reason uh, were non-existent. It just kind of happened. And it was very freewheeling uh, in a lot of ways, which was both good and uh, bad, depending on uh, if you were one of the people making the money and being allowed to do what you want, as opposed to one of the people being forced to work uh, interminable hours for uh, peanuts. So the animated strike breaks out. Walt is not helping things uh, in resolving the strike. So eventually, when the government offers him the goodwill mission down to South America, he takes it and goes down in the summer of 41 to all these South American countries uh, on behest of FDR, at which point Roy is able to resolve the, the strike. And by the time Walt comes back, everybody said like the kind of magic was gone. Like Walt was bitter about the strike. Nobody was, you know, everything was tense on the lot. And then they, on top of that, start scaling back their ambition to the point where Dumbo is 67 minutes with much more simplified art. And they really don't get ambitious with their films again for years. And I don't think they ever get as ambitious as Fantasia ever again. So I know that you read uh, Neil Gabler's book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the most interesting parts of that is when he talks about the strike, because the strike is the the turning point for Walt. Yeah. And arguably, depending on the source, the reason for Walt's somewhat controversial reputation into the present day. Yeah. Um, because the strike is what drove him further towards the Hollywood right, because he hated communists, because he blamed the Communist Party for the strike that ruined his animation studio and the people who were running the Hollywood right at that time were also super anti-Semitic. And Walt Disney does not have a record of anti-Semitism himself, but he had no problem hanging out with anti-Semites because they also really hated communists. And so that's where a lot of those, again, depending on the source, depending on all of these other factors, um, that's where the, the negative aspects of Walt Disney's reputation really are born. Um, are in that strike. Going back to Fantasia, though, I was thinking about that at the beginning of the movie because when you think about Neil Gabler's is it Gabler's Gobbler's something, I, I believe Gabler's, but he can he can tell us if we're wrong. Yeah, he needs to be listening to this right now. Come so on the show, Neil. Um, so <laughs> the yeah, call in right now. 
Um, this is a lot of show going much, on right now. It's WFAN. Much, much, like, much like Mr. Show, we are the pre-taped call-in show. <laughs> so, uh, NBC. one of the things uh, that I that struck me in that book was the description of Walt Disney as being somebody who was incredibly um, avant-garde in his youth or had a reputation for being incredibly avant-garde in his youth to being somebody who was like the quintessential conservative fuddy-duddy. I mean, we use Disney as so many different descriptors of things, but one of the uses of the name Disney is like, oh, that's Disney-fied. You know, that's yeah. fuddy-duddy. That's old-fashioned. That's old school. And how could a guy whose reputation or whose name is now synonymous with old timey and and you know apple pie and flag waving be the guy who put the centaur tits on screen for kids <laughs> like what how where is that shift but at the beginning of fantasia when the presenter who's not stakovsky it's a it's an american guy it's yeah it's deems uh wow i have the uh, deems taylor who was a radio host yeah so when deems taylor comes out and he has that quintessential 1940s radio, you know, game show, like uh, quiz show type voice comes out and he starts describing exactly what you're going to see. And he starts explaining the pictures that might be in your head. How quintessentially Walt Disney is it that he's telling you exactly what you're about to imagine? <laughs> yeah. Like, I am going to dictate your fantasies for you right now. And they are fantastic. They are surreal as all hell, you know, because like the definition of surreality is we're going to present something that looks like it could be true, but is thoroughly impossible. So he was taking the medium as far as it could go at that time. I, I don't think he did any actual direct animation, but animating the the abstract shapes to be in time uh, where he says we're going to bring in the soundtrack and yeah. he like has the graphical soundtrack line. Um, there were animators who have done direct animation where they would draw onto film the um, the soundtrack and the sounds that you hear are nightmare fuel. It's amazing yeah. and and fascinating and totally fucked. But the uh, the Walt Disney version of that is way more controlled. But he uses the narrator to tell you how this fantasy is going to go. He's using the narrator to prime the pump and. When you get to later, after he loses his kind of flavor for animation, after the strike, after a bunch of failures, um, what does he do? He goes to the live action thing for a while, and he really likes the live action. The live action continues, but that becomes Disney's B, really. Yeah. He goes to the parks. And the parks are where Disney puts all of his effort from the mid-1950s to the end of his life. That is the Disney place. And what better example of somebody who has a brilliant imagination who is a consummate entertainer but who is also going to exercise a level of control that is unparalleled over the way you are going to have fun you are going to experience this and you're going to have fun and you're going to experience things in a certain sequence or in a certain manner because i'm making it exactly that way i am leading this horse to water um, so I, that really struck me with Fantasia that even like the young freewheeling avant-garde Disney before the strike, before the war, before all of these other things, basically was you see that happening right there in Fantasia. Well, that's that's in part because and there's an interesting factoid with that. 
that I think points to the larger Disney paradox. So Walt became fascinated with abstract film and abstract art. Uh, he saw a an Oscar Fischinger film. I don't know if anybody knows Oscar Fischinger. Uh, 1935, he made a film called The Color Box. Fischinger made a bunch of abstract films. Uh, his film Motion Painting Number 1 from 1947 is actually in the registry, so we'll be covering that one day. But he was fascinated by this abstract film. He brought in Fischinger to do the Toccata and Fugue in D minor sequence. But Fischinger quit halfway through without credit because he felt Walt kept altering his designs to make them more representational. Fischinger also contributed to the Blue Fairy's wand and Pinocchio. But, but Fischinger mainly worked on Toccata and Fugue in D minor. And there's something about the fact that Walt specifically brought Fischinger in because he's like, I saw this abstract art you were doing. Do that for me. And then went in and made it less abstract because I think the eternal paradox of Walt Disney in general, uh, and I think the Disney company still today, the fact that Walt Disney, you know, you mentioned the parks. Think about the fact that he's got one foot in Frontierland and Main Street USA and the nostalgia and the other foot is in that Tomorrowland futurist stuff. Even Carousel of Progress, his great ode to the great big beautiful tomorrow is all just taking you through the past and innovations of the past. I think that one of the things about him is that when you look at what he does, yes, he is interested in moving things forward as an artist. Uh, he is interested in trying new things, but he is wary of going too far. He is always, he, he wants to do more. There's, there's my favorite anecdote about Disney is that he had a private screening of To Kill a Mockingbird when it came out. And he afterward turned to the people who were there with him and said, I wish I could make something like that. And I think he was too afraid to do that under what he felt Walt Disney was and what the Disney brand represented. But you could tell he wanted to. And I think that that's when you talk about Fantasia and the fact that, as you point out, he's laying out what you're supposed to see. He's trying to do both. He's trying to do something artistic and abstract, but also make sure that nobody can reject it. You know, well, is it that? I mean, that's ultimately kind of the shame of why Fanta of of Fantasia's failure is that if it succeeded, you have to feel that he would have been emboldened on his next picture, mm -hmm. and that yeah. it would have had a little less handholding and continue to be less handholdy, and that's essentially. You know, as much as there are movies after this that Disney made in his lifetime that we all enjoy, that are great classic animated movies, you know, it has to be said they do lack the ambition and they go more towards the simplicity because he he swung for the fences and he got knocked the fuck out. You know, it's the it's the shame of it. And to bring it to uh, like why Fantasia 2000 failed, it's it's the difference. I mean, it's just the difference between like. Walt had a hand in the movie. You know, it was yeah. Walt's movie. He's hiring people. Oh, I saw this avant-garde movie. I'm going to hire this guy, but I'm going to, he's going to quit because I'm too hands-on. That was still Walt's movie. Fantasia 2000 was nobody's movie. It was, it was just, it was Roy E. Disney's. No, Roy O. But it's like, the Roy O. Oh. Roy O. Disney's. But you know what thing. I mean? It's like, oh, I know. It's like, I know. it's like a movie where it's just, oh, we have this IP. Let's try to honor this thing. But you're not really getting what the thing. Well, let's put Donald Duck in it this time. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> it's like 
you're, supp- you're missing the fact that Walt made it to push things forward instead of yeah. just repeat, rinse and repeat, and then like missing the kind of classiness that he even brings to the handholdy quality of this radio host telling you what's going to happen. Instead, we have Steve Martin coming out making jokes. Listen, I love Steve Martin. You know, you got Penn and Teller coming out. It feel in- instead of feeling like a classy night out at the opera. It feels like you're watching a fucking VH1 special. Well, it feels like you're watching a, a, a colorful world of Disney, yeah. which Disney created 20 years after Fantasia had come out. When his ambition was kind of gone, yeah. Yeah, but, well, but, it was just a different ambition. It was a different yeah, flavor. Yeah. He was 20 years older. He was jaded yeah. by X, Y, and Z. Um, and, you know, I think just incidentally on Fantasia 2000, based off of the stuff I was saying earlier, the first Hollywood film to be uh, go through the digital remastering process and be released into IMAX theaters as a Hollywood film and not an institutional film was Fantasia 2000. Huh. So that was actually the first time that IMAX started to step their uh, toe into that sort of event cinema um, aspect. It's a fascinating, I mean, you know, obviously part of Fantasia 2000 comes out of the fact that when Walt was working on Fantasia, there was the idea that were Fantasia a hit, it would be re-released every however many years, and they would do new segments, and they would swap out some old segments, and they would put in new segments. That whole Disneyland is never truly finished idea. But they would put in new animated segments, and the only constant would be Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is why Fantasia 2000 is all new segments, with the exception of Sorcerer's Apprentice. I mean, obvious, and they actually were working on, people can look this up, if they, I don't know, they were working on a third. While they were making Fantasia 2000, you can find a couple of Disney shorts that were later released as just shorts that were supposed to be part of the third film. Was Il Destino going to be part of that? I think Destino was one of those things that they were working on and then said maybe it'll be part of uh, the third Fantasia and then said no. The one I know for a fact is Lorenzo which is, if folks can look it up, there's a short called Lorenzo. It's very cute, but it's about this cat that loses its tail. The cat with a tail that keeps getting cut off? Yeah. Yeah, that is a really strange, yeah, it's really very, strange short. It's, yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's like a semi-horror film. It's very bizarre. Destino was one that actually Walt had been developing. Uh, I'm saying this for our audience, not for you, Jordan. I'm, I'm not telling you, you don't know, something you don't already know. <laughs> but Destino was a short that Walt had actually, been, talk about ambition, Walt had been developing with Salvador Dali. They were going to co-create an animated short, and then they had all the designs, and they had all this, and then it just didn't happen. And then there's this interesting thing going on in, like, the 2000s where people start – I mean, the Disney archives get made properly and organized, and then people start going into – Dave Smith is instrumental in that. Um, I believe it's Dave Smith's name. Uh, And people start going into that, and they start discovering all of these half-done projects that Walt was working on and go – well, can we get something out of this? And people rediscover Destino and go, oh my God, we were going to make a film with Salvador Dali. Let's make it. And in like 2003, they actually complete Destino. They look down and go, Walt was trying to develop the Ice Queen. Let's work on that. And that, of course, becomes Frozen. So there is this kind of excavation. Fantasia 2000 is motivated by Roy O. Disney comes back into the company at this point, I think, because Eisner had iced him out. And, or was. No, he Eisner was still there. Eisner was still right. there. It was one it's, of his it's last after efforts. That. Yeah, because I just the only reason I think of that is because I have you, Jordan. Have you read uh, Bob Iger's biography or his memoir? I should say. No, I haven't read Iger's. I don't think. seek it. Seek it out. 
He is mostly polite and he is mostly cordial and professional, but he definitely talks shit from time to time and it's delightful every time <laughs> he does. And he does it politely, but it's like, he's like, you know, poor Roy, he felt neglected. He also liked to drink. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, all right. You're throwing that there. Uh, <laughs> and like, he's like, and by, by all accounts, he was a mean drunk. I was at the end of some of his angry tirades emailed at 2 a.m. And you're like, geez, okay, Bob. But yes, you're so Roy was there at the time, but there was this big push about like, well, we were going to do, uh, you know, we were gonna, he was going to do multiple, let's do another Fantasia. And I think Fantasia, uh, similar to uh, the first Fantasia, which comes out the same year as Pinocchio, and both were like financial gut punches to Disney. Fantasia 2000 comes out at the tail end of 99, early 2000, and I think comes out alongside, like it's sandwiched between Tarzan and Dinosaur. So not a great yeah. box office time for Disney then either. Yeah, it was like Tarzan, Dinosaur, The Emperor's New Groove, Home on the Range, Bolt. Like, it was the, the Chicken Little, like, all of those. Um, Bolt is like the, the Disney Renaissance was gone. Bolt is like the start of a, of a comeback, because, like, I think, yeah, it's Tarzan, then Fantasia 1000, then Dinosaur, then Emperor's New Groove. Uh, Home on the Range is like 2004-ish, is right? Four? Yeah, I think Chicken Little comes a little after that. Bolt is yeah. like 2007 or so? And then eight is Princess and the Frog, and nine is Tangled, and things start picking up again. So I know that it was 06 when um, Catmull and Lassiter took over. Yeah. Um, and and Eisner Bolt was, was one of the ones out. they intervened on, yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that had happened, I know this is going down like a totally weird rabbit hole, but like in terms of finding, the, finding their way again, one of the things Eisner had done was he, was, he fired every 2D animator, and he said, yeah. we're not going to make 2D animation anymore. And the first thing John Lasseter and Ed Catmull, the Pixar guys, said when they took over is, you're all rehired, and they made The Princess and the Frog. Because that was part of the legacy of what Disney did. And I just want to like be, you know, totally, totally open and transparent about this if you hadn't found out uh, by now, dear reader or dear listener. But I'm a huge Disney fan and I have mad respect for what Walt Disney accomplished. And I have mad respect for Walt Disney in the context of who he was at his time. He is a he is a unique individual. Um, that is, you know, both both great and terrible as every unique individual can be. So I think one of the things that's so fascinating about um, Fantasia and one of the things that's so fascinating about all of the things that Disney has done surrounding Fantasia, you know, Fantasia 2000, all of the theme park attractions, all of the ways to try to make it fit, is the the Walt Disney Company knows that this movie matters. Like, and it's not just a box office thing because it wasn't really that big of a box office. It became over time with rentals of the mono track and everything. But they knew that this one mattered and this one was important from that golden age. And the Disney company has been trying to keep it alive and keep it integrated into the wider story of Disney because it mattered. But so few of those efforts have felt like what it really was yeah like where yeah. they haven't been as experimental disney 2 or fantasia 2000 feels like in our 21st century view a cynical cash grab i don't know that it was a cynical cash grab that certainly wasn't the era of franchise filmmaking yeah. that we know today you know it was a it was an attempt to make a movie that was part of this sort of thing and when you say like disney wanted to re-release fantasia every year he that there was no such thing as a franchise 
you know, he was making this shit up um, with we're going to just keep repackaging and, and building upon this thing. And Fantasia 2000 was a step as part of that, but the business around it had changed. And I think that's where a lot of our discussions of Fantasia or Fantasia 2000 or the Walt Disney Company as a whole kind of come into play is how they influenced the business, how the business adapted to those changes, and then how those things like Fantasia become the exception versus the rule. So what I want to do now is I want to just, you know, as we because this is one of the only times we can do this. Normally on the show, we don't go through the plot or anything in a linear order. But I'd love, uh, you know, so we can all weigh in on things. I'd love to just go through the segments in order and kind of just share our thoughts and little trivia in this film that is this epic anthology. Uh, we've talked a lot about the Takata and Fugue in D minor, which is the opening sequence, which is the abstract shapes. Um, but I do um, want to, yeah, Tom. I was just going to say just uh, some a little bit. I took a little notes watching this just because I'm stupid and I'm going to forget. Just kind of going to the point of Jordan saying like how important this is. It doesn't it feel like every short in this movie is going to kind of like touch other Disney properties yes. as it goes on. Absolutely. Because I yeah. feel like watching the uh, Takata and Fugue D minor, this feels like in Dumbo when Dumbo starts tripping balls. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it feels mm -hmm. like that's where they kind of like, you know, we're going to be ambitious here. All right. Didn't work, but like, let's look at this and see like what we can use for other things. And that feels very much. I was like, Oh shit. I, cause because going back to like my Disney um, uh, amateurness, uh, I didn't see Dumbo by the top before I saw Fantasia with Mike. But since I've seen it, I've seen Dumbo and watching Fantasia, and I'm like, oh, this feels very much like when Dumbo is tripping yeah. out at the end. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of just like the one thing I'd want to say. So, yeah, uh, uh, next segment. Well, I, I do want to say to your point, Tom, about the, you know what else I saw and I noted this? When the sparkle cascades happen, that to me felt very Mary Blair, who was a, a mm -hmm. Disney artist who was hugely. Was she on this? I don't know. I couldn't. I was looking and I found conflicting things. So I was trying to narrow that down. One of the problems is that I feel like I mean no I'm credits. <laughs> well, that's yeah. It is one of these things. It appears that her and Ivan Earl did like concept art from like the best I could gather. But even then, I'm not entirely sure because I it's so odd to uh, yeah, it's it's hard to say. I'm looking at some of these concept art here and I don't even see names. Hard to say, but it it felt very Mary Blair. The other thing that I thought was so interesting, uh Walt wanted this sequence quote to feel like you were uh half asleep in a concert hall and the images came to you in a haze. I think it's interesting because, you know, you look at the later sequences that are much more detailed and much more extravagant, and there would probably be a temptation to start that way and start with a bang. Now that I watch it, you know, and I, I'm used to what this film is, I love the fact that it starts so abstract and out there so that you, it puts you in the frame of mind for just sitting back and experiencing the images as they come to you without in any way kind of uh betraying what is to come or you know making you aware of what it's going to look like later well it's also a very um it's a word i'm looking for didactic might not be the right word but it's a it's a very explanatory like in the art of animation 
Um, and that's where you start to see, you know, like leaning forward into future things that you're going to see from Walt. He's going to create the wonderful world of Disney and the, you know, all of these things in color television and fantastic things in his parks that he always loves talking about how the sausage is made. Yeah. And so that sequence is actually, if you're looking at it through the right lens, an explanation of the medium. Um, and I know you mentioned Penn and Teller as part of Fantasia 2000. Well, like Penn and Teller, I, I love those guys because they tell you exactly how they're going to do the magic trick. They don't have any of this like stage magician hookum about, you know, the, the mystical arts. I'm going to tell you exactly how this is done. But then you try making that at home. I, I go back to like a old Mitch Hedberg bit. You know, they say the ingredients of Sprite are lemon and lime, but you try making that shit at home. Uh, you know, you want to come over for some homemade Sprite, not until you figure out what the fuck else is in it. So um, that first sequence of Fantasia is very much a here are the principles of design. Here's line, here's color, here's shape, here's form, here's texture, here's weight. Um, but it's still entertaining. It's not just yeah. a bunch of shapes and call it a day. There is a method to the madness, yeah. Let's talk Nutcracker Suite. Uh, I'm going to start with Tom, but also, uh, you know, we'll start with Tom on these, but but I'm also, I've been waiting for this because I learned a trivia fact about this sequence that I have been holding to hear Tom's reaction. So, Tom, thoughts on the Nutcracker suite sequence? Pretty pretty neat. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, it's it's an anthology. You know, there's going to be some highs and lows. Uh, you know, it's nice watching some, uh, watching some uh, mushrooms dance around and, you know do some mushroom things i don't know it's uh it's very very trippy what if i said i could make the sequence work for you with one fact tom uh give it a go punk you mentioned the mushroom sequence uh there's the one little mushroom who can't keep up with the rest and is doing his own thing they named him hoplo his movements were modeled after curly from the three stooges he is meant to be curly from the three stooges it's pretty cool pretty cool i can dig it's pretty pretty fresh did Pretty we fresh. get you? Did we get you a little higher on it now? Just a just little bit, that, a little yeah. uh, okay, uh, higher. Mushrooms, <laughs> Hoplo. Um, so <laughs> it was. I also read the thing about the Three Stooges, and uh, my son is currently obsessed with Three Stooges. We have the entire DVD collection, um, and so he's he's a total Three Stooges fanatic. And we watched that, and I will say that that is some of the most recognizable music now. <laughs> so when the conductor starts off and he says, this is a rarely performed piece yeah. of music, you probably don't know it. I'm like, the fuck we don't. This is <laughs> yeah, this is every single Christmas ever. Um, but of course, yeah, in 1940, that commercial radio hadn't been spun up in the same way. Um, and some of those tropes and traditions hadn't been fully realized like they are now. So uh, the thing that got me with that is, A, I could point to that and say, um, you know, as he's watching it, when you watch the movie on Disney Plus, there's a disclaimer at the beginning that says, you know, hey, there are some this is an old movie and there are outdated cultural representations. And I was trying to think, like, are they just putting that up for the centaur nudity or what? What's it about? And then the Chinese dance started and I went, nope, found it. Yeah, like found found the racism. OK, um, so it wasn't just me that was like, is no. this? No, Disney and, and Disney Plus has put up the disclaimer being okay. like, yeah, we know this isn't cool right. now. Okay, because um, I have the, I have the Blu-ray, so I don't have a disclaimer. I just uh, have yeah. a, a, a scratch in the back of my head going, "This seems wrong." Tell you, Tom, even yeah. your Blu-ray is edited down for racist content. We'll get there. Yeah, I don't the, think you know about oh. that one. 
But we'll yeah, get oh, there. are you talking about the thing at the end? When, yeah, yeah okay. I don't think well, I don't think Tom knows about the centaurs. Uh, so yeah. we're gonna get there. Yeah, Disney Plus cut that part out too. But they yeah. did leave in the Chinese dance because it's an integral part of the film, and they put the disclaimer yeah. up. Um, which I really appreciate. I yeah. love that Disney and, and Warner Brothers and guys are doing these things because the films matter. Um, but and the films are not one hundred percent bad, but there is context that is required for viewing them. And I think that that's a really elegant solution within reason. Um, I'm, you know, not certainly not advocating for anybody being like, yeah, just throw birth of a nation up and let's see what happens. But, no, but even, uh, even like Defura's face, you couldn't put up even with yeah. a disclaimer because you've still got swastikas all over the place. You've got swastikas all over the place and it's too easy to take that out of context. You really need the Leonard Malton DVD set. Yeah, uh, it, you know, and, and and you know, it's just it's a thing of like, you know, art is a reflection of where we at or we are where we are at as a culture at the time. So yeah, throw a disclaimer up and just be like, listen, we didn't was, know this was bad at the time. We thought it was cute and, and just silly stuff. Well, certain I, I I will say that certainly there are a number of Asian Americans who knew it was bad at the time, but well, they just yeah, but also but that's it. also a thing of like, well, we didn't listen to the Asians at the yeah, time. Yeah, we, we didn't busy, listen. We, we were too busy throwing them into prison camps. Like the, yeah. the live action, that. the live action segments of this film are shot by James Wong Howe, who Tom you might know as the cinematographer on The Thin Man and Sweet Smell of Success. He shot all oh, the my kind, my kind of guy. That's yeah. my kind of guy. So there may have been a chance where, yeah, during the uh, during the prep for this, maybe you know if they'd screened it for James, he would have gone, "Hey, hang on, hang on." What, yeah. what was just what was just in the background, just going, "Don't fucking show James. Don't fucking." Or show honestly, James. honestly, he would have probably knowing what Hollywood was like at the time, he would have looked at it and gone, "I mean, really, compared to what else I've had to personally shoot." It's, it's, it's uh, not also, that bad. also, just just imagining Walt just going up like, "Hey, look at this! Isn't this like your people?" And James just having to go. Yes, Walt, this is just <laughs> like my people. Yeah, is my check movie. about to clear? <laughs> yeah, this isn't a Charlie Chan movie. We're good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, so I think that that sequence, um, being able to contextualize it for my son by saying it's influenced by the Three Stooges was an automatic win. And also, again, back to Disney doing a really good job trying over the years to integrate their past. That little guy is the bonus mushroom from the Kingdom Hearts mm -hmm. franchise. Yep. Yep. So my son has whacked oh. the shit out of that guy with a key a million <laughs> times uh, because he automatically recognized and he didn't know where originally it was from. Like, oh, yeah, those are the bonus mushrooms from the Kingdom Hearts games. And it's it's interesting, too, like watching that aside from the mushrooms, like there are so many moments in that sequence. Like there's a reason why whenever they would advertise this on like VHS tapes or DVDs. The piece of music they'd always use is the there's that, and it's always the Russian flowers doing the kick out and the ballerina flowers. This sequence is kind of the easiest visual argument for what this movie is because it is this thing of what it does so well, particularly the milkweed ballerinas and the Russian flower dance, which is you look at it and it you fully understand what this is because it's. I look at this, and on the one hand, the movements look like humans. On the other hand, the images look like flowers. And I know that sounds very simple to describe that way, but that combination where you can lose yourself in it. When you're watching the milkweed spin, you can lose yourself in it and think like, oh, those are ballerinas dancing. And then you look at the detail and go, no, obviously these are, these are flowers. I think it's just such a perfect example of what 
they were trying to do with this and what the visual element of this does so well. And again, going to my um, professional movie critic, eight-year-old son, uh, he was blown away at the animation. And because, I mean, like he's, I I guess, smarter than the average bear because he lives here and we talk about how the, how all of this is done and how the, the process behind it. But he said, this stuff looks real. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And there's no rotoscoping involved. And well, I mean, in some, in some, no, but, but I was going to say to his credit, he's also right because some of it is real insofar as the snowflakes are actual filmed cutouts on gears integrated yeah. in so seamlessly. And, and just again, for, for you listening at home, there was no compositing. There was no <laughs> level of like a photo composite required basically projecting onto animation or doing reverse negatives where you're in, during the printing process um so or sandwich negatives or something but there was no level of like just you know throw it on a, a new layer in premiere it's also you know tom acknowledged earlier on like how much how each one of these segments kind of looks ahead to something in the future of disney it should also be noted that in this segment the fish are just cleo from pinocchio the the fish that show up are just the same design as the fish from Pinocchio from earlier that year. Now, obviously uh, the next segment in the film sorcerer's apprentice, uh, you know, probably the the, inarguably the the most iconic images from this film, Tom sorcerer's apprentice. I, I, uh, I appreciate the apprentice because uh, it's my favorite kind of Mickey and it's Mickey where he's a stinker. Uh, Just, just, just causing trouble, not being a, not being the cute little guy we all know today. And it's, I mean, it's just fun. It's just really, it's, I mean, there's just an energy to it. And it, again, like we're going to say with every segment in this, it's just gorgeously animated. Well, now, Tom, let me ask you this. Do you think that you would enjoy this segment more if instead of Mickey, it was actor Jay Baruchel? And instead of the wizard Yen oh, Stig, God. it was actor That's the Nick craziest, Cage. that is the craziest <laughs> shit. Like, seriously, what the f- fuck were they smoking at the Walt Disney Company at that time and going, hey guys, you know what would be a real smash idea? And then they say all of that fucking nonsense and someone goes, congratulations, you're getting a bonus next year. I just gotta say that 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 movie feeds into the finest Disney uh, live action traditions though. I mean, when when you think of some of the stuff that Disney has done live action dating back to the 1950s and 60s, Sorcerer's Apprentice makes just as much sense as the Shaggy DA, yeah, or the Treasure of Matacumbe, or the Cat from Outer Space. Love the Cat from Outer Space. That's Love a great that movie. movie. But it's also interesting. I didn't think of it until just now. Uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. One of two times they've attempted to adapt one of these segments to live action. Because let's not forget Nutcracker in the Four Realms for the previous sequence. So. It's all, you know, it's all there. Seriously, what the fuck were they thinking? Uh, Honestly, just, yeah, sure, whatever. Good job. Good job, Walt Disney Company in 2013, I think. You know, Tom, Tom, do you know what they were thinking? They were thinking, I'm sorry, you made National Treasure, and what do you want to do next? Fine, you made National Treasure work. Do what you want. Um, It was the same mentality that gave us Lone Ranger, which was just, you made pirates, that worked. Fine, do whatever you want. Um, Sorcerer's Apprentice, I think, is... Did anyone on Sorcerer's Apprentice ever eat anybody? <laughs> that took me a second. Um, so let's, with Sorcerer's Apprentice. That's what he though, said about some of their fingers. Hey, oh. So um, with Sorcerer's Apprentice, it's a fascinating 
sequence to watch because when you consider, like, obviously it's the most famous sequence in the film. It's so influential. One thing that struck me, and I did not even think about it until until I was listening to it with commentary when they talked about how originally they had actually drawn the sequence of Mickey using the axe to kill the broom. You would have seen it in full view, and it was deemed too disturbing. So they do that thing where Mickey goes down the hall, and the light in silhouette, and he's chopping up the broom. And it was only watching it that time that I it hit me where I went, this is Meatloaf getting killed in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> like, it's the same camera angle. Like, you don't see, I think you maybe do see the shadow a bit, but, like, what happens at the end of Hot Patootie in Rocky Horror? He goes back, and then Frankenfurter goes back with the pickaxe and is chopping him up. And I just was, like, going down that corridor. The influence that this sequence has had, I mean, obviously, Jordan, you touched on the iconography of Sorcerer Mickey. Now it's one of the most, of the Mickeys, it's it's one of the most famous designs. It's kind of like that Steamboat Willie and Brave Little Taylor kind of I mean, it's, in that. it's just such a simple and elegant design that it's just, you just look at it and go, oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. So... My my son, when um, he was, I think, six months old, we went down to Orlando. It was one of those things where, like, you get a free stay on a timeshare if you sit through our pitch. And then we showed up for the pitch to get the free timeshare. And they saw the baby and they said, you guys are good. You can go oh. um, because they knew that we weren't a mark anymore. <laughs> uh, so we didn't go to Disney World that time because he would have been too young and that would have yeah. been a waste. But we did go to downtown Disney um, or now Disney Springs, Disney Springs and we yeah. ate at the uh, the Rainforest Cafe and, you know, gave him plenty of money. They're fine. <laughs> Um, but we went into a, a, a gift shop and, uh, his bedroom border was something that I found on eBay that was out of print that had the evolution of Mickey Mouse from 1928 all the way through to the most recent design at that time, which was like 2010, I think. Yeah. And it had all of the different iterations of Mickey and one of them was Sorcerer. And I gave him an option cause he's a baby. So, you know, you're not talking much. You're just holding up things and saying point, which one do you want? Um, and I, it was Stitch or Donald or Sorcerer Mickey. And he was like, I want that one. And he got Sorcerer Mickey. So my son has grown up with Sorcerer Mickey as like one of the all time, uh, you know, best snuggly friends you can find watching. And this is kind of why I mentioned the thing about taking the intermission. When you watch Fantasia, Sorcerer Mickey's segment doesn't make any sense where it is. It comes too early. Right. You would think if you were watching this as a singular film, the big celebrity cameo would ha in in the most engaging presentation for kids, certainly in like modern Disney, you would like back load that or you would you would make that like a thing when you're structuring your set pieces or when you're structuring your story beats. But Sorcerer Mickey's appearance makes perfect sense with an intermission. Hmm. It's the it's the height of the climax for act one. And then there's a falling climax that follows, and then there's the intermission, right? There's, there's yeah. one or two numbers after that. There's just the there's just the um yeah there's the, there's the dinosaurs yeah dinosaurs and then yeah the dinosaurs happen after that. So you're brought up with the with the abstract uh, shapes, and then the Nutcracker, which is very um, consonant music, like it's very engaging, it's very memorable, and then you get Mickey Mouse, and then we're going to do something really weird next. But there's yeah. an intermission so you can process the really weird thing we did next. It's it's fascinating, too. One thing I was thinking about watching this is that, obviously, all of these classic... When I was thinking about these classical songs, like, 
we all know Takata and Fugue in D minor. And it is cool to see those visuals added to Takata and Fugue minor. We all know the Nutcracker Suite. And it's possible if you grew up with this movie as a kid, that when you hear the ba ba da ba 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 you picture the, the dancing flowers. But we know the Nutcracker Suite. You can hear the Nutcracker Suite on the radio and you think a million one things. We know the Rites of Spring. We know the Pastoral Symphony. We know Night on Bald Mountain. We know these things. I was thinking about the fact that the only song in this film that is indelibly linked to these images is Sorcerer's Apprentice. You don't really hear that song to the same degree without thinking of that. It doesn't get used the same way. It reminds me a lot of, um, I think Quentin Tarantino talked about like how certain songs show up in a movie and you feel like no other movie should ever use it. Yeah. He said he he talked about getting viscerally mad anytime Be My Baby comes on in Dirty Dancing because he goes, no, that's Mean Street's song. You can't have that. And I do think like all these other songs, you could use Nutcracker Street, Sweet and a Million Things. As good as Night on Bald Mountain is, you can use that in other things. But Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah. But Sorcerer's Apprentice, you hear the bum, 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 and you're like, the brooms are walking. You can't do anything else. The only time you ever hear that out of that context is if somebody's selling you a broom. Yeah. <laughs> you will only ever see brooms associated yeah. with that sound. Yeah. It's it's truly Yeah, it, it's absolutely. Um so you mentioned uh, obviously the segment after Oh, well I should mention before we get into the rites of spring, you do get that moment where the silhouette of Mickey Mouse walks up and goes, "Oh, Mr. Stakowski. Oh, Mr. Stak," which I vividly remember even from like the tapes as a kid. Uh that, even just that like the silhouette of Mickey walking up to the conductor has been parodied a million times. I'm confident the Simpsons did it. The weirdest one uh, that I, I still remember is in Son of the Pink Panther. <laughs> they start Son of the Pink Panther. The Roberto is that the Benini, Benini one the from Benini the 90s? One. Yes. It's also the last one that Henry Mancini would work on or Blake Edwards would work on. The movie starts with Henry Mancini about to conduct the Pink Panther theme and the silhouette of the Pink Panther walking up and shaking his hand and then getting into antics as they record the score. But, like, even in that, they did, to play off Henry Mancini, if you will, they decided, let's do the Fantasia bit. Um, I didn't need to tell anyone that. We've all seen Son of the Pink Panther plenty so of times. We're still, we're still, oh we're, still we're still we're still talking about it at our local watering holes at, at, right <laughs> yeah. right right that's that's how we try that's how we lean lure ladies the ladies and in. ladies ladies and gentlemen second time son of the pink panther has been referenced on you're missing out i just want that on the <laughs> record because you're cooked at home because you're a piece of shit roberto benini fan <laughs> i mean look it's it's so common i even had to ask the benini one as <laughs> if there were other sons of the pink panther like this dude uh, got around. Um, I just want to, before we go into the rest of spring, though, like I, a rash I, in Vegas. <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out because we haven't talked about it at, at, at length yet. But the live action segments are yes. amazing. Yes. Nobody else was doing live action in three strip Technicolor like mm -hmm. this. Yeah. And everything about, I mean, I was watching it last night and, you know, you kind of like change the things that you focus on as you get older. And I was hooked on how amazing all of this shadow work was yeah. with the live action, knowing that they were having to do light gels and all of the, all of the work that was going into that with massive fucking lights too. Yeah. It's, it's just uh, that to me, really, I knew the animation was going to be good. 
but but the the live action segments were a level of breathtaking innovation that nobody else was touching before or since it it was it was too insane in three strip technicolor to do live action segments like they did and it's interesting too because and i want to make sure i get the the facts right on this there was i was thinking about watching it this time because there was a short that won the oscar in i think the 50s uh i'll pull up the exact year here uh 1953, Overture to the Merry Wives of Windsor. This is an Oscar-winning one-reel short that was just filming an orchestra performing the Merry Wives of Windsor. Because, you know, I got why you did that, and I got why it was considered impressive, because not everybody could go see a full orchestra perform. (laughs) But I was thinking about it in terms of, I'm watching this 1953 short, compared to how they filmed the orchestra in Fantasia, Overture to the Merry Wives of Windsor looks like crap. Because that was just like wide shots and occasional close-ups on an instrument. And when you look at how dynamic the camera angles, the shadows, the colors are when he's filming this orchestra, it's so engaging, those segments. So you're right to call that out, you know. Yeah, I I was really impressed with with that. I mean, impressed, you know, I'm I'm sure that Walt Disney is thrilled with my endorsement uh, at this point. But, you know, good job, Walt. Um, That was a a great idea. Because it... (laughs) When I was in uh, my my undergrad was in film studies and I took a film and literature class. And one of the things that stuck with me from an otherwise very um, inane class was the professor would bring up this concept of metonymy in adaptation and how um, the film language is obviously different than the written language and how you can use object replacement to replace words or to synthesize feelings. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, like you're describing with the Merry Wives of Windsor, and you just see wide shots of orchestras, especially now we've seen that we have PBS like we're that's not impressive. A wide shot in a close up is not a particularly impressive sequence. But what Walt did that still resonates today is make the orchestra dynamic and alive in a way that only film can. Yeah. And utilize like pushing the boundaries of this relatively nascent technology um it to to do something really impressive in a way that no other medium could uh and so yeah i think that that was if if anything i think that's actually the thing that makes fantasia special because there are lots of other animation anthologies yeah um but there are, there's no other live yeah. action like that um so the rights of spring which it should be noted that was a Stravinsky composition. Stravinsky was alive when this was happening. They licensed it, uh, you know, from him, this composition. They got his clearance. He came to the studio. There's a great anecdote, because remember, this is still in the freewheeling studio days. There's a great anecdote where a bunch of the animators put on the record backward to just fuck around and hear, like, right? and Stravinsky walked in and heard it, and they all panicked. Because they were like, oh, he's going to be mad. This is Igor Stravinsky. And he looked at them with a very serious face and said, it sounds just as good backwards, and left. (laughs) Baller move. (laughs) Apparently, Stravinsky uh, would not speak highly of this. Uh, It's also just insane to think that Stravinsky was alive when they made this. I know that's how timelines work. But every once in a while, you just have that thing where you're like, you you don't think people exist in the same place. 
He did not love this sequence, apparently, but uh, he would continue to give them music, so I guess he was cool enough with it. This was also originally supposed to be, Walt originally wanted this to be the actual ending of the movie, uh, but people intervened and went, you can't end this movie with the dinosaurs dying. People will not be okay with that. Uh, without further ado, just for those notes, Tom, writes a spring. Pretty, pretty good. Immersive. It's very uh, gorgeously designed. And again, once those dinosaurs show up, it's fucking metal, man. I mean, T-Rex straight up just murders that dinosaur. Also like that the uh, the conductor refers to the, uh, some of the dinosaurs as gangsters, which, uh, Walt, what did you think the dinosaurs were doing back then? They were... They were they they were running people down for debts and everything. Tom, there were racketeering raptors, didn't you know? Racketeering. All right, all right, I'm going. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, no, it's yeah. Uh... <laughs> no, it's great. I'm. It's um, and maybe not exactly a Disney movie, although I think they own it now. It's just the Tree of Life. It's that sequence in the Tree of Life where they just stop the narrative just to show how good CGI effects are now. And like, look at the birth of the universe. And you go, great. Where is Brad Pitt? <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, when I watched this as a kid, I guess it always, it didn't register with me as a big deal as a kid that they do this dinosaur sequence. But that's also because I was born in 1990. And uh, Tom can attest to this too. Like, And Jordan, you probably remember from this time as well, like dinosaurs were everywhere. Uh, Land Before Time had 90 sequels. We Are Back came out. There was, there was a, a, a hell, the, there was an ad for brushing your teeth that was hosted by an animated dinosaur. Like, dinosaurs were, were goddamn everywhere. So watching the sequence then, I was like, yeah, sure, you're doing dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, everybody loves dinosaurs. Now looking at it and recognizing how out there it is and the fact that they are talking about, like, we're going off of the latest science about how the dinosaurs died, and the fact that they originally, Walt originally wanted to show, like, the story of mammals and the first man and fire and man's triumph, and then uh, apparently somebody stepped in and went, that will really piss off the creationists. <laughs> and yet he did it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like, his yeah. narrative is, so, like, all right, here's here's the thing about that sequence. It's not my favorite sequence in the movie. No. Um, however... I had so much mad respect for it, whether or not it was like truly a like fuck you to to anti science culture, which was not as defined as it is now. Um, I mean, although the Scopes Monkey trial was what like twenty years before this, I guess something like that. Yeah, something like that. And uh, but but in any event, um, Walt Disney existed at a time where his Marceline uh, Middle American folksiness could still tell a story of evolutionary science in a way to to high classical music from a living avant-garde composer yeah. utilizing the latest and greatest in animation technology so he's basically taking all of these things yeah you know, avant-garde uh of music crazy high-tech filmmaking um that he is infusing with as much high art as possible from the get-go when he did abstract expressionism for the first sequence um, and evolutionary science. And he's taking all of those things with his very aw shucks demeanor and making it palatable and understandable and even relevant. Yeah. 
for the for the aw shucks crowd. That is amazing. I mean, that's really and truly. And how much of that is Walt Disney like intentionally doing that, saying like, I'm going to science them good right now. And how much <laughs> of it was just genuinely him going, I'm he was not a very well educated man. Not saying he wasn't smart, he just wasn't formally educated. Yeah. He did not frankly have an understanding of classical music very well, but he also existed at a time, and this movie came out at a time when pop music was in its infancy because commercial radio was in its infancy. So, um, and record sales were in their infancy. So he didn't know classical music, but he knew it as well as he would have known jazz or, or pop standards of the time because he would have grown up with classical music influencing um, the, the bandstands of of his era and so yeah i just thought that that sequence was one where it's like man he's swinging for the fences and he's getting a lot of stuff wrong probably but that's okay but it's interesting because he's he's if he is he was right for his time insofar as you know you mentioned walt was not a well-educated man and that's true in the in the you know formal sense but the one thing he had and the reason the, the key reason why he continues to capture the American imagination the way he does is that he was curious. He was always yes. curious and he always surrounded himself with the right people, and the people who had the information. I mean, the reason why baby boomers revere Walt Disney so much is that every week he came on your television and he either gave you a true life adventure shot by early nature documentarians and, you know, biologists who were giving you information Frontierland history stuff, or most famously, those incredible Tomorrowland segments, whether it's Man in Space or Mars and Beyond that people can watch on Disney Plus, or Our Friend the Atom. I mean, Our Friend the. I mean, you think about the fact that in fifty nine, nineteen fifty nine, an episode of Disney television just thoroughly explained to you nuclear power, and brought in a government scientist. Where he originated, we're not going to talk about it, but a scientist working for the U.S. government at that point to <laughs> tell you... Ludwig van Drake. Yeah, yeah, to tell you about... I'm from how, Oregon. ...how we split... <laughs> so, But, like, explaining how they split the atom and the origins of nuclear power, that was crazy. And with this, with this segment, I have it written down, they brought in Roy Chapman Andrews, who is the director of the American Museum of Natural History, English biologist Julian Huxley, paleontologist Barnum Brown, and astronomer Edwin Hubble. The animators studied comets at the Mount Wilson Observatory and observed a herd of iguanas and a baby alligator that were brought into the studio in order to understand how the dinosaurs might have moved. Walt may not have known all this stuff offhand, but he did have the sense to bring in people who did know these things. And to their credit, I was just listening to uh, a podcast today that is still something that they do. They are still thorough in their research. There is a guy, uh, I forget his name now, Dr. Mark, I'm blanking on it, but the head of kind of the animal studies division at Disney who works in Animal Kingdom and watches every film they make to do with animals in order to make sure that this stuff is still scientifically sound. It doesn't feed into animal trafficking and all kinds of stuff. There is this idea of bringing in the experts. And to your point, Jordan, like this is a thoroughly scientific and researched segment 
Yeah, I mean for the for the time, well, I Walt wasn't as powerful in 1940 as he would become in 1960. Yeah. But I mean that was a major major event in trying to make you know the the ivory tower intellectuals come together with you know flyover country. Yeah. Well, people weren't flying as much, but people who lost their, you know, family farm to the robber barons 30 years earlier. And in in keeping with that, as a aside, uh, before we went to Disney World for uh, when my son last year with my son, um, we watched all of the Imagineering story on Ooh, Disney yeah, Plus, yeah. Great and series. that documentary is fantastic. What an amazing show! Because he was interested in how the rides work. Yeah, and it is it Up Iwerks's daughter or granddaughter who made it. I. Ooh, I don't know, but I know it's one of his relatives. One of his yeah. So it's like an it, iWorks is basically telling the story of special effects, and it touches on the fact that Walt Disney, again, not largely formally educated, but he was a self-taught civil engineer. Yeah. Um, and I think in America, to you know, go way over the top, we give a lot of credit to like the, our great inventors aren't really the inventors; they're the they're the business people. They're the people who came up with a way to monetize somebody else's great invention, and we give them credit for it. Walt Disney did not monetize things that he wasn't directly involved in the ideation and creation yeah. of. And I feel like as, in terms of that sort of American spirit of let's you know talk about our great uh, uh, inventors, Walt Disney is one of the few who actually fits the bill of somebody who was inventing or at least bringing in knowing like answer, asking the questions and finding the answers yeah. for the things that he wanted to see and the things that he wanted to create. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Then we have our intermission as noted. And then the next segment we get is the pastoral symphony. Uh, and once again, yeah, Tom, uh, pastoral symphony, centaurs and, uh, uh, Zeus and, uh, a chubby drunk, Bacchus, Dionysus? B Bacchus. They call him Bacchus. They just swap back and forth right. between Greek and Roman. It's really distracting. Yeah, good. Okay, so I'm not losing my mind then. Thank you. All right, so obviously centaurs, A+. plus. Love a good centaur. You know, I, I, I wish the rest of the movie was just based around centaur questions. But um, centaur's great. You know I appreciate a good chubby guy getting drunk and causing trouble so much that the gods start throwing lightning bolts at him. Also... Just Hercules. That design is just yep. Zeus and Hercules. Yep. Um, which I appreciate. Um, yeah, it's a fun little, you know, just a little romp about centaurs getting some centaur pussy, and then a guy just getting so drunk that he splits the world in half, and God starts fucking with him before he takes a nap in a in a cloud. A couple things to note on that one. Uh, two uh, artists that worked on that segment. One is the aforementioned Freddie Moore. Freddie Moore loved drawing nude women. It was his thing. My kind of guy. I believe he contributed to, apparently, in the stairwell leading up to the roof of the studio, there used to be all these drawings of nude women drawn by the artist. I'm confident Freddie Moore did most of those. Uh, that was the roof where you could only go if you were one of the high-level people and you could sunbathe nude on the roof. Studio was a different place once upon a time. The other interesting trivia fact, the dancing pan children uh, were drawn by... Walt Kelly, who later created the Pogo comic strip. Now, I will say this, Tom. You said you like the centaur segment, right? You like this whole sequence? Yes. And you know what's great about this sequence? Absolutely zero minstrel caricatures. 
Oh, so that's what was yeah. uh, taken out of this? Okay. Yeah, if you watch it carefully, you'll notice that certain scenes and certain shots look a lot grainier than others. Um, okay. That's because there is the the lead woman centaur who is being tended to in the original film by a a servant. Oh no. Little centaur. Yeah, it's so a lot of early Disney stuff is plagued by I mean there's a there's there's minstrel imagery in a lot of Disney stuff, but it's particularly because it is forever intertwined with uh America's fascination with Uncle Tom's cabin in the early nineteen hundreds. Like there's there's multiple Disney shorts that deal explicitly with it. There is one called Mickey's Melodrama where Mickey and Co. are literally doing a performance of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And then oh those are oh, you got pogo books, Jordan? Did I just see the spine of a pogo book? Yeah. Spines you saw the spine of... of a lot of pogo books. Fantastic. Love it. Um yeah, but Uncle Tom's Cabin is a big thing. Particularly uh you could tell Walt and a lot of the people were influenced by the stage productions of Uncle Tom's Cabin. We can't get into this now. We are gonna have an Uncle Tom's Cabin episode seasons from now when we have to do the first film adaptation. Uh, no, not the first film adaptation. The first film ad- adaptation to actually star a black man in the role of Uncle Tom uh, was inducted into the registry. But it is a fascinating thing where the legacy of that story is that the book is very abolitionist and very kind of radical for its time. And then the stage productions that get put on because the book was such a hit really water that down and make it a lot about white characters. But one of the things that prevails are these certain images and iconography like the Topsy character and so on and so forth. Um, that are repeated a lot, including in these Disney shorts. They were a reference point at that point. The uh, the young black female centaur in the film is very modeled after this minstrel Topsy character. And it's just, it's a thing that is, to watch it, you just, it, it's so out of place. Um, it's like, it you know, Jordan, you talked about how the, the Chinese dance in um, the Nutcracker Suite is integral to the film, right? And it's one of those things that you look at and go like, I understand why this was done at the time. It is the the other sequence, the center sequence, it's it's not just offensive, it's it diminishes the sequence that it's in. And know? and therein lies the downside of populism because yeah. Walt Disney was going out of his way to make something that was um going to bring you know, class and education and all of these other things to middle America. And perhaps, I mean, he's not here to explain himself, but perhaps one of the calculations of that is throw in a minstrel show and they'll pay attention. And, and, and that may also be like, you know, giving him too much credit. It also may be throwing a minstrel show. Cause I like him. Um, so it, it it's an unfortunate, Unfortunate, unfortunate's, you know, a diminishing word, but yeah. it's just a fact of Disney of this era that you're going to wind up with an awful lot of minstrel imagery for no good reason other than Walt was a man of a certain age from Missouri who thought it was neat. Um, and if that sounds like I'm making fun of people from Missouri, I absolutely am. Uh, they deserve it. They've they asked for this. No, but like the other, uh, the character's name is Sunflower. By the way, I had to look it up. But the character's name is Sunflower. Um, I do think when you talk about like, well, it's there because Walt was that way. The interesting thing is like, you know, that was a a remnant of a previous time in a way that I think 
there's so much that we don't know how to reckon with because we're lacking the context of the time. And to be clear, not that the context of the time ever excuses this stuff, but rather that like there's normalize la- maybe. Or or not even that, there's just extra layers where like we we deal with um we're going to deal with later this season Duck Soup, the Marx Brothers film. And oh, it mentions man. Well, it it's there's nothing too problematic in that except for there's one line that Groucho tosses off. There's this line where he evokes this he's saying something. Uh he says a line and we'll deal with it on the show. But there was a song, a popular song at the time that had this title. But what's so fascinating about it is that when you dig into it, you hear this line. It was a song that was most famously performed by Paul Robeson. Wow. And it is a song that based on the research I had there are some people who believe that it may have originated as an offensive song, but that the song itself, when Robeson performed it, and as it was then known, is a satirical kind of song. It was, you know, this whole thing about all the suffering that that people of color have to go through, and then ending it on this very, like, southern church kind of line of, that's why they were born, but it's like laying out how terrible life is. And it's like, it, it may have in its own way been like the 1930s equivalent of Short People by Randy Newman, where it's like, you know, there is a satirical edge. Now, I am not suggesting that the Sunflower character in this film is not satirical. There's nothing valuable There's about no it. no good reason for it, yeah. And by 1969, the Disney company recognized that uh, by editing it out, at first by editing out just her scenes, and later by, as we have it now in the film, just zooming in on shots that that character was in. So if you look, there's like, most notably, there's one sequence where we just see the head of the centaur woman and her lifting up one hoof. And like, the full shot is her getting a manicure from Sunflower, but of course, we only see her holding up the hoof. But it is one of those things where the fascinating thing about it is that when you look at this sequence in Fantasia 1940, while there may have certainly been people who went, hey, we shouldn't do this, you know, it's still in that era of like, well, come on, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a throwback, it's a reference to blah, blah, blah. And then you fast forward just six years later when they're working on Song of the South and literally like throngs of people are coming in to go, don't do this. Stop. The NAACP is weighing in to go, please don't do this thing. And you do, I think that that's interesting in terms of just seeing that cultural shift as well, where like in 1940, I don't see a lot of contemporary writing talking about that character and saying like, oh, this is bad. But six years later, there was this intervention of Jesus. No, don't do this. Well, and in terms of like the the unnecessary levels of don't do this, I mean, just what? Two years later, we got Dumbo. Yeah. And what is Dumbo most famous for now? Yeah. Yeah. The minstrelsy crows in Dumbo are the most famous part of that movie. And what's I mean, it's a shame for like a million other reasons, but one of the things about it is it's the best part of the movie too. Like that the song is the catchiest song. The animation is really memorable and catchy. So they put a lot of time and effort and energy into perfecting the worst part of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's just one of those things. I mean, like I say, with that Marx Brothers line, I can quote that right away because I love Duck Soup. I think Duck Soup is one of the funniest movies ever made. And that line is nails on a chalkboard every time I've seen Duck Soup. 
And it's one of those moments of like, should I, you know, I grew up watching it. Do I share duck soup with my son? You know, I had to have that, that question. And then I decided like, look, I'm going to show you this because there's a lot of other stuff that's actually culturally important and relevant in it. It's not just funny. It's an important movie, but there's something you need to know that you're going to hear. But that's, I mean, that in that moment, and we'll get into it, but like in that moment, the thing that makes it fascinating, what I love about Disney history in particular is it's so intertwined with American popular culture that I do get to do a lot of research into who was this, who was that, you know, um, reading the old Walt, uh, old Mickey Mouse comic strips and Mickey boxing with a cat who they call Primo Cat Nera gives you an opportunity to dig in and go, oh, once upon a time, there was a boxer named Primo Carnera, and he was the biggest thing in the world. Or how Mickey in Plane Crazy is obsessed with Charles Lindbergh, and then after 1940, Mickey never talks about Charles Lindbergh again. A guy who actually was a virulent yeah. anti-Semite. Anyway. An, an actual dyed-in-the-wool yeah. anti-Semite. Yeah. Um, and I'll even, you know, you mentioned, he mentioned Walt Kelly and, uh, as I have all of these Pogo books, I grew up, my great uncle was a huge collector. So all of these are his that were passed down to me. And I grew up reading Pogo and I love it. Pogo originally had a character. It was originally Bumbazine in Pogo. Yeah. And Bumbazine was super offensive and Walt Kelly took Bumbazine out, um, yeah. and never to be reprinted again. So in all of the anthologies, cause these are original pressings from like 1950. And Pogo was known for being one of the more progressive comic strips. Oh, yeah. I mean, Pogo was very progressive. Um, but even Pogo had this insanely racist minstrelsy character that Walt Kelly, for whatever reason, had the good sense to get rid of um, well early in the in the process. So I didn't realize that Walt Kelly actually had something to do with the, yeah. with the sunflower sequence. But... I guess he he must have grown up pretty quick after that. Let's talk Dance of the Hours, the second to last segment in the film. One that is also, you know, we talked about how Mickey, Sorcerer Mickey is the most famous image of the film. Then probably Chernabog. Then after that is easily the the hippo and alligator uh, ballet dancers. I think this is the most plainly comedic sequence in the film. And I think that's probably why it sticks out. But uh, Tom, Dance of the Hours. Did not care for it. Sorry to bre- sorry to burst your bubble, bitch, but I did not care for it. Uh, it's fine. It was there. You know, it's well animated, but, you know, I don't know. Just didn't do it for me. Also, just love that it's like, hey, let's, let's throw it to the idiot before the two experts start talking about every little intricate detail about it. So it's just like, hey, hey, Tom, tighten up your helmet and tell us what you think about this animated short. <laughs> You took notes, and I wanted to make sure that you got your notes in. And so every time, especially because when it started out, you were actually just like reading your notes. So when I said, Tom, thoughts, thoughts on this sequence, I was waiting for you to read some notes. And then it no, I didn't. I didn't, though, take, I didn't take notes for this one. It his his notes on this were just fart noise. <laughs> <laughs> My notes were, I need new underwear. So. So, uh, dance, dance of the hours. Uh, dance is the only note that I have here because I was listening to the commentary and I thought this was interesting. So that sequence where the hippo emerges from the pool in front of the Roman columns, uh, and comes out all elegant. That is a parody of a scene from a previous film called the Goldwyn Follies choreographed by revered choreographer, George Balanchine. 
and the woman coming out of the fountain is his wife. The hippo? Yes. The <laughs> hippo is parodying revered choreographer George Balanchine's wife in an otherwise elegant sequence of the Goldwyn Follies. So this is about as close to a pop culture reference as you get in this movie. Uh, and I thought that that was interesting. The only other pop culture reference you really get is back to what I was saying where, like, pop music was in its infancy. And yeah. so this was, like, you know, making – making you you had folk music and you had classical. And yeah. then, like, ja the jazz age had certainly happened, but it was still, you know, new. When they come back from the intermission and yeah. the band all of a sudden becomes a big band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the basic going pizzicato and everything. I think that's such a great way to, like, if you take the intermission – if you watch it straight through, it's uneven. But if you take the intermission, then it makes a lot more sense because they're coming back with a humorous bit and then going into something, you know, heady. And then the the middle point of that is, okay, we just took you through, you know, a thousand-year-old of centaur nonsense. So here's a hippo. What more you. do you want, kid? Jordan, do you have any... That centaur was not nonsense. <laughs> Jordan, do you have... Oh, centaurs you... had titties. We, we can't get into it. I, I, I'm not going to do more Freddy talk. Uh, I, no, listen. Slide. No, because you said they took out the nipples because yes. Freddy Moore was getting too detailed. But you know where? There's I, nipples and not on Bad I, Mountain. Tom, I know. I know. Listen, oh, buddy, oh, we're We got up. some titties. Jordan, do, you have, do you have any more thoughts on Dance of the Hours? before we hand it over to Tom for Night on Bald Mountain, and he goes for what I assume will be two hours. No, but I will say, I, I like. I think it's interesting, and it's not surprising, but um, in terms of how Fantasia shows up again, uh, in the opening sequence, um, well, not the opening sequence, but the opening, like, when you meet Toontown in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, yeah. what do you get? You get brooms walking by holding buckets of water, and yeah. the hippo sits down on the bench and yeah. launches the guy. So that clearly had cultural cachet that also shows up repeated elsewhere. You know, I'm going to save that thought for later. Let's get let's get tonight on Bald Mountain. Tom has earned it. <sighs> All right. All right. All right. This is the moment where Tom and his helmet come into play. <laughs> Tom, this is why I had you going first each time, because I knew we needed to just give you this runway. Tom. What are your thoughts on Night on Bald Mountain? It's a short where the devil explodes out of a mountain and just starts raking havoc on a fucking what I have to presume is a tiny Eastern European village. And little demons are just fucking around and just like, yeah, man, we're the demons, man. <laughs> it's just the devil is fucking metal, man. Nobody can see this video except for you fucking guys. But look at me. I look like I exclusively work as a bouncer at heavy metal clubs. I got a long fucking chin beard that I haven't cut in a year. Hot Ian beard. I got fucking tattoos. I'm wearing a Macho Man Randy Savage cutoff t-shirt. I got, I'm bald. I got thick black glasses. I look like I know what this, it sounds like when you throw someone against a wall after they get too handsy in a mosh pit. This is so fundamentally my shit that the rest of Fantasia could have just been Shrek forever after and I would have been happier than a pig in shit. It's so fucking cool. And it's animated great. Honestly, when, when the devil's like going down and its hands are like shadows and running over the village, that's some insane animation, honestly. 
That's fucking crazy. Like, there's a part of my brain, because we've lived in the CGI era so long, that I'm like, oh, they had to have, like, touched that up with CGI or something. And you, then you have to go, no, dumbass, this is 1940. They, they have to, they're do, all these fucking maniacs that, after what Walt made them do, said, um, I think we need to unionize. Because <laughs> that was very hard. <laughs> and we want to see our families. <laughs> But it was fucking unbelievable. It's it re- like Jordan says, like you 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 think of how they put all of this together and the structure and where each one goes into place. Walt was wrong. You don't put the dinosaurs at the end. This is how you end it, especially because it's so metal. The devil is literally in a fucking Disney cartoon. But then you have that very beautiful, very just poetic ave maria with the monks and the candles just walking through the forest and you're like fuck that is how you end a goddamn movie that is that's how you end a movie if you're ingvar bergman though that's the thing that's insane about i know but that's that's why i love it that's why i love it and that's why you wish you really fucking wish this shit didn't fail because you wanted like i want to see the world where this guy on his next movie gets to take a swing that takes takes a bigger swing, gets a little more ambitious with what he's trying to do. Because honestly, like with all of the other stuff, you can see like the Walt Disney in it, even if it is more ambitious and poetic and avant-garde. But like you don't see the devil <laughs> in a Disney thing. Honestly, you don't see the goddamn devil until the princess and the frog where the bad guy is literally dragged to hell at the end. Well, don't forget about the 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 king in um, Black Cauldron. Uh, what's his? All name? right, yes, the Witch King or whatever. He well, is. I'll, I mean, I'll go back to his lifetime. I mean, I'd say Maleficent is pretty fucking brutal, man. It, it is, but to Tom's credit, the the fact that we call him Chernabog now, the big demon, right? His yeah. name is Chernabog. If you check any Disney literature now, his name is Chernabog. They sell merchandise of Chernabog. They do bits with Chernabog on House of Mouse. But Tom keeps referring to him as the devil, and he's right, because the internal (laughs) documentation for this movie at the time explicitly called him Satan. Hell, the fucking, the the guy introducing the short says, the devil. It is the devil. I don't care. It is the devil. Chernabog, never heard of him. You know who I have heard of? The fucking devil. Beelzebub, baby. It's just the fucking, it's the fucking coolest, man. This is my Kenny Nybart moment. It's the fucking coolest, man. (laughs) It's the Uh, devil. Wait, Tom? The Waterboy's mom would be so fucking mad at this short. Tom, I'm gonna make this (laughs) even better for you. (laughs) Do you know who was filmed as a visual reference for Chernabog? Richard Nixon. Bella Lugosi came in and waved. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Oh! 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 Oh my! Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, I fucking love it, Walt Disney. I'm gonna fucking steal your head and I'm gonna give you a big fucking kiss on the cheek. You frozen bastard, you. I love it. Oh! 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 This is... Oh, I need a cigarette. Fuck. That is the best. Bella Lugosi just haunting the halls of Disney Studios. I... As the devil. And you know that freak took it way to heart. Walking around, yes, I am the devil. 
and and Walt's just like, oh god, what did we get into? Uh, Tom has managed to turn Jordan's face Technicolor red. I think that's amazing. Wow. The laughter that has occurred in that set. We could just... <laughs> wow! Yes! Pella Lacosia's the devil. Oh. Oh. Mwah. Chef's kiss. Yes. Alright, now, now you two nerds talk. <laughs> I mean, what else is there to say? I'm gonna go do, I'm gonna do push-ups now. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, look, it's an incredible sequence. It's unbelievable. It's real. It's it's really, it's unbelievable. You you see so many techniques taking place from the way that, you know, the look of the, the spirit, the souls as they're rising up that uh, to the demons, the little demons themselves doing their odd herky-jerky movements that, as I told Tom before we uh, started recording, uh, was lampooned in Beavis and Butthead to America. Never it just that. keeps getting better. It yeah. just keeps getting better, folks. Yeah, I mean, it's it's because the thing is, like, if you look at the the, it's not just the images; it's the different animation techniques at work. Yes, that uh, make the sequence so incredible. It's it's you know, uh, it, it's it's a grand finale, like it in the most literal sense. It's obviously it's hugely influential. It felt a lot like, in a way, you know, Tom made a, a comment talk about Ward, Walt Disney inventing heavy metal. And to that point, like, there is a moment when I watch this segment and then think about the more out there, the darker animation, the heavy metal aesthetics um, that come about in, like, Ronnie James Dio album covers and shit. And it is a little bit like when you listen to the White Album. And, you know, the Beatles, obviously, we talk about how influential the Beatles are, but everybody has an idea of what the Beatles sound like. And your idea of what the Beatles sound like is, like, early Beatles, I want to hold your hand kind of stuff. And then you listen to the White Album, and you're hearing them try all these different sounds, and then you hear Helter Skelter for the first time, and just go, did they invent punk rock? Like, yeah. just on one track, there's just, and it sounds nothing, like, there are other Beatles songs that sound like other, nothing ever truly sounds like Helter Skelter again, you know, before or after, in the same way that, like, Jordan, you make it like the closest thing, as you pointed out, is Maleficent is very similar. But even then, like watching Night on Bald Mountain, you're like, it's never quite this level of upsetting again. You know, it's like the literal battle of good and evil. It's yeah. it's biblical. It's allowed to be dark in a way that, yeah, Maleficent can be upsetting. And there's some things that could be upsetting in Disney stuff, you know, before and after and whatnot. But it's it's just a primal upsetting image. And I, 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 it's just, like I said, it's not, it's, it's the obvious ending because it's the obvious, it's the thing that Disney hasn't done and sadly isn't going to really chase that kind of dragon again. You almost feel like if this was successful, would they have like, I don't know, hired fucking, like, Ralph Bakshi at some point or whatever, or would some of, like, the heavy metal, like, mm. honestly, like, would would some of the guys that drew for, like, Heavy Metal Magazine ended up working for the studio? Would they have gotten Mobius or whatever? Like, it's just one of those things where, like, this is such a, like, a what-if that ends this movie that I just love it, you know? And so, it's like, you could score that, you could, you know, you, you have the Night on Bald Mountain, you could score it, no, like, because literally, like, heavy metal is built so much into an operatic form, so much that Metallica's done two shows with an orchestra, the San, San Francisco Philharmonic. You could put an orchestral version of For Whom the Bells Toll up on this short, and it would fit 
and you would just be like, I like I joke, but literally like this is a guy seeing something, whatever's going on, because a lot of the heavy metal guys coming out in, you know, with Black Sabbath are built from the ruins of World War Two. There's something in the air going on that I think Walt was able to like latch on to and see like something's like this kind of imagery is going to become popular. It may not be now. It may be the kids who watch this in the bombed out ruins of England and then end up making these heavy metal bands or whatnot. But this is something because, I mean, literally, like, we're about to enter a war that is the only literal, like, war in the last, I don't know, 100, 150 years that is a battle of literal good versus evil. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, you know, back to me being dumb, it fucking rules. <laughs> well, so like there's there's something interesting that you, you said in all of that because um, there's a lot of interesting things that you said in that. But I was going to say, I I'm think, glad there's one. <laughs> yeah, I, but I think one of the things that's really standing out to me is you say if this was a hit, then Walt would have done more. I would argue that if it was a hit and Walt had done more, metal imagery would not include any of that. Because Walt true. was not making counterculture. True. Walt That's true. Yeah. was making mainstream culture. And the fact that this mainstream thing kind of fell a little bit wide the wayside and became a roadside curio yeah. 40 years later, 30 years later, was the seed of counterculture. Because counterculture doesn't span in a vacuum. It's not antisocial yeah. by, by its true definition. Counterculture is we're going to take things that you recognize, things that we all have as a common, you know, uh, a, a counterculture in terms of like pop culture representation and art. Um, we're going to take things that feel normal and we're going to impose our what you have deemed abnormal or antisocial behaviors on top of them. That's why pop art works. You know, that's why Andy Warhol can make like a complete political revolution out of painting fucking soup cans, right? Because there's something that becomes nefarious or bent or left of center about something that feels innocuous and recognizable. And so I guess what I'm saying is that like there's a there's another uh, there's a book that I read called The Hitmakers. I can't remember the name of the author, but he basically talks it throughout history of like how these lightning in a bottle moments occur um, and takes a very like gestaltist view of history. And one of the things he discusses is how teenagers didn't exist before the 1950s. Yep. Because in the leading up to the 30s, you were a kid who read, frankly, some pretty disturbing stuff if you've ever read the original Grimm fairy tales or these morality plays, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you were a kid who lived in a world of death, and then you were no longer a kid because you were old enough to raise children and go to work in the factory or the farm. And then after World War One, everybody started moving from the, fa- or from the farms into cities to start working in factories and concentrating population centers. And in those concentrated population centers, they would do mass schooling through 12th grade. So really the first generation of what we would assume, what we would now call teenagers, where like the hormones that people didn't know existed started raging when you institutionalized hormonal humans, um, occurred in the 1930s. But then all of those guys survived a Great Depression to go to a war. So it wasn't until they came back from World War II and had kids in their cities and their suburbs 
that went to school and went to high school. And now all of a sudden you've got this entire generation of rebellious hormonal monsters who are going to rebel against everything you got and create an entire genre of music called rock and roll just to piss you off um, and are going to take things from your own childhood that you're going to recognize and bend them in a way that's going to freak you the fuck out, like taking the Chernabog sequence and painting it, airbrushing it onto the side of a Toyota panel van. Like that's where that metal imagery comes from. I think is that level of we're going to reach back into your past mom and dad, and we're going to use that to offend you. Yeah. And it, and it has to especially be like pointedly that it's from the most upsetting aspect of this Walt Disney thing that as time was going on, was getting more and more popular because like we said, so Sorcerer Apprentice Mickey is the most iconic thing. So like you're not going to be able to take that and really twist it because, well, the short is pretty just light and goofy. But we could take the devil and basically everything you just said is correct. And uh, I'm just glad, you know, it, there is a thing where you wish you you kind of wonder what would have been. But yeah, I do think in the end, I'm I'm glad that we could have some sick devil imagery in my heavy metal <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of like, you know, Bacchus getting drunk. Is being, well, and, being on the side of Vance. And it's not like he was the first guy that was taken from Disney culture and, and counterculturized. I mean, yeah. uh, when my parents were born, like the year my parents were born, Alice in Wonderland came out. Oh, and yeah. the year my parents entered high school, Surrealistic Pillow by Jefferson Airplane came out. Does anybody have any last film notes before we wrap up talking like we always do about the Oscars? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we've we've covered a lot of ground on this movie, so we're actually uh, about the running time of Fantasia right now. All thanks to my rantings. Thank you so much, folks. I'm glad you're about to listen to. You just finished this episode that I completely demolished from beginning <laughs> to end. In that case, uh, I will do what we've now started doing. Uh, you know, Tom, how do you think Fantasia fared at the Oscars? I think it fared poorly. <laughs> Do you think it I think receives goose any egg. awards? Goose egg. Okay, so I have news for you, Tom. You're right and wrong. So What? Disney's relationship with the Oscars is fascinating. Uh, obviously, as we touched on in our Snow White episode, he did not. they did not win any Oscars for Snow White. They had won Oscars for their animated shorts, did not win any Oscars for Snow White in its year. Only thing it was nominated for was Score, which it lost to 100 Men and a Girl. Uh, but then the following year, they presented Walt with a special honorary Oscar for his achievement with Snow White. Shirley Temple presented him with a full-sized Oscar and then seven mini-Oscars. Pinocchio does win for Best Original Song from When You Wish Upon a Star. I believe also wins for Score. Fantasia, in its year, in 1940, Tom, you are correct. It got a big old goose egg. was not nominated for any awards. I should note, for the record, the Best Picture nominees that year... All Listen Heaven 2, Foreign Correspondent, The Grapes of Wrath, which we covered last season, The Great Dictator, Kitty Foyle, The Letter, The Long Voyage Home, Our Town, The Philadelphia Story, and the winner, Rebecca. However, the film received two honorary awards the following year in 1941. One of those awards went to Leopold Stokowski for his, comp- uh, his contributions to music in film, I think for Fantasia and 100 Men and a Girl and his other appearances. Another award went to Walt Disney, William Garrity, John N.A. Hawkins, and the RCA Manufacturing Company 
for the innovation of stereoscopic phantasound sound in film. That same year, Walt also won the Irving G. Thalberg Award. So Fantasia won no Oscars in its competitive year, but it did receive two honorary Oscars the following year. So there was some recognition in that regard. With all that said, Jordan, thank you so much for not only joining us, but for sticking around for so long. We failed to ask you. But for tolerating us. Yeah. Uh, And for for coming back a second time, uh, even if it meant that after we wrap up, you go never again. Uh, Thank you for coming (laughs) back. Um, This was so much fun. Uh, Do you have anything you want to plug on the way out? Um, so yeah, since we, uh, since we last spoke, I've moved to a new studio, so, uh, feel free to follow us. Uh, I work with Hero for Hire Creative. We are a animation studio that does production service work for a number of major studios and brands. Um, we're based out of Boston, but I'm still located in Georgia, uh, myself. So you can follow us on any social media platform of your choice, either Hero for Hire Creative and four is a numeral. Or on Twitter, because there's a character limit, it's H4H Creative. Uh, but, you know, we do a lot of cool stuff with um, folks, mostly in the 2D and mixed media sense, uh, clients including Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, PBS Kids, Sesame Workshop. So, yeah. And uh, do you have any other socials you want to plug, anything like that? Or I mean, anybody can follow me and argue with me about when teenagers were invented. On, <laughs> uh, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm Dr. Magnifico. Um, that's DR underscore Magnifico. And that name relates to the first movie I ever wrote when I was 15 years old called Dr. Magnifico's evil adventure, uh, which sadly (laughs) has never seen the light of day, but it would, if somebody wants to invest about 75 bucks, I think I could make it. We can crowdfund it. it Funnily enough, we did. We actually did talk about that topic on the rebel without a cause episode. Oh, the teenagers. Yes, we did get into that. Uh, the teenagers. Jordan, thank you so much for doing this. Thank this you, really. Great. This was great. Um, uh, thank you so much. And everybody else, stick around. We'll be back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Malton and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. All right, boys, time for our registry picks. A reminder to our listeners, it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. As you people, if you're still here by the end of this episode, figured out by now, my favorite aspect of this movie was the incredibly heavy metal Night at Bald Mountain segment. So I was thinking to myself... What is one of the most metal fucking movies I could put into the registry? Sadly, Fury Road is not eligible just yet. Sadly, The Northman just came out. So I'm going to go with something that I think is incredibly metal and is absolutely one of the most um, influential movies of the 21st century. I'm going with 300. I think that movie is... uh, 
visual masterpiece. I think Saxonite is one of the filmmakers we're going to be talking about for decades from now. Um, you know, as we're now dealing with people saying, we need blockbusters with personality after years of giving this guy shit for saying, your personality is, is not good for blockbusters. I think 300 is just a visual tour de force. Narratively, it's simple as shit. It's basically, what if we turned a propaganda story into an action movie? Because that's really what it is. It's it's the framing devices. Oh, this is what a, an army tells themselves to hype themselves up for a battle. The action scenes are unbelievable. It's just, I mean, it's kind of the, it comes from comic books. It's based on a graphic novel. They pretty much use the graphic novel as a storyboards, but it's one of the best examples of pure cinema that action cinema was able to give us in the 2000s, which was so dominated by born identity, shaky cam nonsense that a movie like 300 was such a fucking breath of fresh air that uh, I think we're going to be talking about that movie for a good long time. Snyder in particular, but that movie really is where we kind of figured out what this guy is for better or worse. And um, I think if you're going to put anything to kind of of his stuff to kind of have something in the registry of the action blockbuster landscape of the time, I think this is the movie you have to put in. So um, I'm putting in 300. Because it's metal as fuck. So my pick is something that I was a little concerned Tom might have picked. Um, Not that he talks about it a lot, but I remember showing him this film for the first time. And I remember the effect it had on him. I will remember it for the rest of my days. So I thought there was a chance. Um, In this case... Uh, I was considering a lot of aspects of Fantasia that are, are a parallel with this. Both are animated films that make heavy use of classical music at, as its score, dramatic classical music. They are also animated films that use unique uh, techniques. This film was described uh, as one of the five most innovative animated films of the past 10 years by the Huffington Post. And uh, IndieWire called it one of the 10 best films of the 21st century. It was, it's an Academy Award-nominated film. Had a lot going on. Uh, the difference is that with Fantasia, other than the expository dialogue from the narrator, there's no in-scene dialogue. In this film, there is dialogue, and not just dialogue, but iconic dialogue uh, that's easily quoted, such as, My spoon is too big, I am a banana, and my anus is bleeding. Um, my pick for the registry is truly genuinely one of the greatest animated shorts of all time from 2000. It's Don Hertzfeld's rejected. The premise of the short is that we are allegedly watching, uh, several cartoons that animator Don Hertzfeld made as ads for the family learning channel. And what we get to see is they get more and more absurd. And it uses classical music in the interludes of this bum 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 bum, and the shorts, the little segments in this anthology animated short, just get more and more absurd, and and concluding in if you haven't seen it, please look it up. Um, an incredible, uh, technically done finale, but just endlessly quotable, endlessly weird. This was like an early internet meme. Uh, back in the early 2000s, it found its way online because, as I noted, it was nominated for Best Animated Short at the Academy Awards. 
However, it did not win. It lost to, I just want to note this on the record, lost to father and daughter, which is good. But rejected is incredible. Uh, Don Hertzfeld's a genius anyway. Um, if you haven't seen his uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day is his feature, which is worth checking out. His World of Tomorrow shorts are absolutely incredible. But at the end of the day, Rejected is a masterpiece, um, a, a landmark of sort of 2000s absurdist comedy. And as I noted before, when I showed it to Tom and it got up to the little fluffies doing everybody dance, I have never seen him laugh harder. So uh, Don Hertzfeld's Rejected is my pick for the National Film Registry. My anus is bleeding. <laughs> it's so good. This is like a today I learned moment because I have always associated that video with YouTube because I'm pretty sure that's yeah. how I found it. I had no freaking idea that this thing predates Oscar YouTube like short. a yeah. full six years before its inception. That is dance. wild. Everybody wow. dance! My anus is bleeding! My anus is bleeding! I'm so sorry if you've stayed around this long. Good night, everybody! Thank you again to Jordan Beck for joining us. Next week, we invite Bella Zadenberg, senior editor for Yahoo, to discuss 1939's Ninochka. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.